Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. Dark Satellite Media. Salon, a meeting place to discuss the art, ideas, and philosophy of selected films, the sins they dem- demonstrate, and the subversion shown. Joining me today in the Cinema Salon is good friend, fellow gimmick gang member, and wrestling mark extraordinaire, Mott Spock. Mott, tell us how you would be, good sir, where people can find you if you wish to be followed, and what film you have chosen for us today. Take it away. Well, hello. Uh, thank you for the introduction there, Gene. Uh, hello, Cinemaniacs. Um, my name is Mott Spock, and that's how you can find me on the Facebook machine, also known as Milwaukee Tom, uh, the Midwest Milwaukee Mark, um, in the house with my boy Gene here. And we are discussing the 1992 fi- um, Australian film Romper Stomper, starring Russell Crowe. Um, but it's not because Russell Crowe is why we're going over this, but we'll go into that. And uh, it's a heavy one, so enjoy the ride, everybody. Welcome on in. Yes, yes, absolutely. It is a heavy one indeed. This is uh, Romper Stomper, Jeffrey Wright's controversial but still very significant and important film released in 1992. As Mott said, uh, my name is Gene. That is Gene Von Banyard, the cinema baron, putting the sin back into cinema. Thank you, Sinis, for joining us in the salon today, tonight, wherever and where, whenever you may be. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yes. Now, Romper Stomper. Uh, we'll go straight into it. Uh, we'll get this out of the way because the subject matter and the people, the culture discussed and portrayed in this film are very misunderstood, misrepresented and maligned in popular culture and the media. I understand why, but we want to come correct, though and representation of this culture because it did not start in a bad place with bad intent whatsoever there, Mm. Mott, you would agree? I would totally agree. And ironically, um, what most people known for is completely the opposite of where it started. We will dive into that more. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's it's a, it's a, a, basic case of uh people hear the worst and they don't dig any deeper and they just assume everybody's like that which yeah, is common absolutely. i mean happens it does uh, happen you know but it does happen 
Um, you know, unfortunately, not to get too too political or societal or anything, but I mean, people just assume the worst and they just take for granted what they hear on TV. Yeah, so. that is true. That is true. That is true. Um, so we'll clarify things a bit as well, but, but we'll let the movie speak for itself. If you haven't watched it, Sinise, do go and check it out as well. Romper Stomper, 1992, directed by Jeffrey Wright. Uh, the movie talks about skinheads. Mm -hmm. um, but this is what we need to cover first, though, to get out of the way to having people's minds moving forward so we can get into the film properly. Uh, skinheads. Yeah, there's... Um, Basically, there's two different types of skinheads. Uh, people know about the assholes. Mott, fill us yeah. in a little bit, please, on basically the real good dudes who started it off and what they were about. Take it away. So uh, to make a, 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 brief, a brief history of, of skinhead culture, um, skinheads actually started off as black reggae, uh, darkly complected reggae musicians. And they were very working class and um, pretty much, you know, dance hall music, reggae music was their ska, which eventually turned into ska. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to hear more of it, uh, hit up our good friends, uh, the Commander Re um, Commander Wee, Ryan, and uh, the Reverend Goddamn Terry. And by the way, Terry, I love your fucking nickname, by the way. I don't know if I ever told you that. Um, but they did a really good episode digging really, really deep into this. And they're a lot more versed in this than I am. On their uh, podcast, No One Likes Us, um, season three, episode seven, Gene hit me too. But it really kind of goes over the culture. It was a very, it's very working class. These were these were immigrants that were coming to England to yeah. start for a better life. Yes, you know, from Jamaica, England, rude boys from yeah. Jamaica. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, coming came okay. from Jamaica to um, to start a better life. And somehow, back in the uh, '60s and '70s, England had a a surplus of, of work, but no one to work. And they brought in, uh, you know, these Jamaicans to come in. And unfortunately, as, uh, as Caucasians like to do, we like to steal culture and vilify it and pretty much make it the worst uh, or the exact opposite of what it is. I mean, right, skinhead culture start off as very working class, happy-go-lucky people just wanting an opportunity. And not it definitely racist, was, not racist in the slightest. It, at all. It, it, it basically the exact opposite um, of what people know skinheads as for. Um, unfortunately, in the mid-70s, just um, right-wing extreme nationalists fucking took yes. over the culture and yep. hoarded out um, to make it their own. Um, but then in the 80s, as... Um, as Terry and Ryan go into, and this is what I was more exposed to as a kid, luckily. I was very lucky. Um, a little background on me. Um, I'm from the Midwest of the United States. Um, I grew up in a relatively rural area. It's more suburban now. Um, and, you know, I, there was not many darkly complected people where I live. But very fortunately, um, my parents are what I like to refer to as Kennedy Republicans. I mean, they are Republicans, but my parents were literally probably the two least racist people you'll ever meet. And I was very, very fortunate because not a lot of the kids I grew up with felt that same way. And I could have very easily gone down a very different path than I had. You know, a lot of the kids, they were rednecks and they were there, they're relatively harmless, but there were some that were, took it a little bit more seriously, more along the veins of this movie, um, more dangerously. And um, I was very lucky with my parents and also, then at a very young age, I found um, 
public enemy. So <laughs> I know we're talking about Nazi skinheads and public enemy comes up, but just being able to, um, my parents also, besides, I mean, they would never ever tolerate racism in our house, um, you know, but they also taught me empathy for people, no matter what fucking skin color, no matter your ethnicity. So I was very lucky that way. And I think if it wasn't for that, I might've gone down a different path with mm-hmm. my influences. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the, 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 the skinheads I associated with were called sharps. And um, I didn't yeah. actually realize this until I listened to the episode, but sharps was started in 1986. Uh, but basically it's short for skinheads against racial prejudice. Mm-hmm. There you go. And, and, and you tell people that, and they lose their fucking minds. They're like, no way. There's not, you know, skinheads are all bad. They're all fucking, they got swastika tattoos, blah, 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 blah. When they, Nazi skinheads are literally a very, very minute representation of skinhead culture in general. Um, a very good example of, of skinhead culture in 2021, um, Gina, I don't know if you're not big into the hardcore, New York hardcore music scene, but there was a big concert a couple weeks ago in Tampa Square Park. And um, fellow gimmick gangers, Wisdom and Chang uh, played it, uh, Madball played it. But just to listen to these guys, I mean, it was, there were skinheads all over the place from all walks of life. There was rich skinheads, there was poor skinheads, there was mm-hmm. white skinheads, there was dark complected skinheads. And the way that common media treated that concert, because it was a unifying event. And, but they didn't want people to know that. You know, so that's why you never hear about, you know, there, there's so many different groups um, you know, of, of anti-racist skinheads. I mean, the, the majority, the, the percentage that Nazi skinheads take up to run non-racist is, I, I can't even tell you, but you don't hear stuff like that. And I just went on a huge tangent. I'm sorry. No, please, yeah, please. That's where I'm coming from with this movie, so. It's important clarification before we go into the film as well. So people know where we're coming from, listeners and viewers as well, uh, as we approach this film. Um, very interesting, first off the bat as well, I discovered Public Enemy uh, at an early age as well. Um, and there were skinheads of the neo-Nazi asshole type, we shall call them boneheads from here on <laughs> in as well, because that is a global term for these assholes in England as well as America as well. Not so much here, but I'm certainly going to d- adopt it and let it be known. Right. Um, I discovered Public Enemy at an early age, uh, which was um, important for me as well. Um, because uh, boneheads, they were prevalent back in the 80s and 90s in New Zealand, and as seems to be the case uh, based on this film, watching this film again and the research mm-hmm. that I have done. Uh, they certainly were here in Australia, where I'm recording from. Um, and so I'll get into my um my history of uh, associating with uh, naughty types, as you put it before, and why that <laughs> was the case. Um, as we go into the film and go into the Australian history of neo-Nazism and racism in general, revolving around Australia, because that's a whole mm. deal, definitely, unto itself. Um, yeah, so but very interesting there. Um, just wanted to... Uh, throw in a little extra bit there with your um, history of skinhead culture. In England, it was fueled by, as you say, uh, nationalist politics and political figures as well. We're talk- um, uh, the National Front, yeah? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, the the political leaders and spokespeople fueled the fire for uh, this racism to uh, really get going, to really become incendiary, uh, and also to create that that fork, that divide in skinhead culture as well between basically uh, the rude boys, whether they be white or black, if you will, uh, to the neo-Nazi assholes, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. In England, the nationalist politics. Uh, yeah, yeah. Poli- politics, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and politicians, especially politicians, I should say, uh, have a lot to blame for the misrepresentation and the mal- uh, having the culture maligned throughout the decades up to this day, definitely. And that's why uh, Jeffrey Wright uh, also revisited Romper Stomper with a TV series that is out on stand mm-hmm. now, um, uh, because um, as we'll see in Romper Stomper, uh, we're looking at an anti-Asian sentiment that has switched to anti-Muslim sentiment. Yep. Uh, and that certainly exists in Australia and uh, and certainly exists in America with your thankfully now past president, Donald Trump, fueling that fire. Yeah? Mm. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and, um, and listen, I, I would love to tell you, I mean, I did spend, I, there was a time in my life where, you know, I had a shaved head. Um, I was rocking my Doc Martens and I had my laces, you know, my... My, my, my laces were never red and never white. We'll go into that. That's actually a huge part of the skinhead culture and, you know, their symbols, um, you know, and that whole thing. Um, but I, I never subscribed to, and I thought, but I knew people. Um, so basically, to make a long story short, I knew people that knew people that did some things. Um, I grew up in the sticks, but I was relatively close to Milwaukee, and Milwaukee is close to Chicago for people throughout, most people know Chicago. It's a very blue-collar area. So we do have a very, very prevalent skinhead um, history in this town, which I actually really need to dig into um, with some some people I know. Um, but I, I was very fortunate that the Sharps and really, really took over the scene, as uh, mm-hmm. as kids like yeah. to say, and they were really able to physically, um, physically beat out the Nazi skinheads. Uh, I would love to tell you I was super badass and I fought these guys. Unfortunately, I was not. Um, you know, I believed in it, but I, I don't have the stomach for stuff like that. I can't fight my way out of a white paper bag, um, you know, but I, I witnessed it with my own eyes. I and mean, I've seen Nazis beaten with bats. I've seen Nazis beaten with bricks, with bar stools, and, you know, the whole kid in caboodle. And they did a great job. And I thought that they won the war. But with recent developments in politics in this country, Unfortunately, there's a lot more of that that was below the surface than I realized, but we'll get into that more later. We'll get into that. That's a good point, though, to see where this has progressed as well. Yes, and unfortunately become a lot more organized, if you will, as well. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um, And just one clarification for the listeners, viewers, before we move on. When you say naughty there, Mott, just so no one's misinterpreting that as a endearing rapscallion Dennis the Menace style term. No, it means assholes. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. means a hundred. Yeah. It, it was our way of basically um, dehuman- dehumanizing, you know, Nazi skinheads and really making them more of a joke than anything yes. else. Yes. Um, yes. So, bo- I mean, bone, it's the same thing as bonehead. Just, I mean, that was just how we dealt with it. Yeah. 
yeah yeah you know yeah. solicit i just i'm like oh you're just naughty you're just a little fucking idiot you know yeah so yeah. and and as i say i'll get into the kiwi slash aussie new zealand slash australian perspective on the whole thing as we go into the film this being an australian film but really cool to get that uh uh, Midwest, yeah, the Midwest perspective on things in America. Yep. There, yeah, yep. cool, cool. So, all right. So basically, well, I, oh yeah, to make a long, make a long story short, Gene, I would just like you guys to know we are not racist assholes. Yeah, I'm currently wearing my "fuck racism, <laughs> watch wrestling" T-shirt, and I also busted out my Nazi punks "fuck off" Dead Kennedys Inch singles Beautiful. right here for everybody. Yeah. So just in yeah. case you're wondering where we stand, fuck these assholes. Yes, fuck these assholes, absolutely. Um, across the globe, the gimmick gang ain't about that shit. Exactly. <laughs> damn sure. All right, all right. Okay, thank you there, Mark. Beautifully done. All right, okay. Yes, Romper Stomper, directed by Jeffrey Wright, 1992. It is an Australian drama film. Uh, it stars Russell Crowe the one and only, Daniel <laughs> Pollock, Jacqueline McKenzie, and Tony Lee. Uh, they're the main players. They're the main players within this film. Uh, in terms of Russell Crowe, this is what broke him. This is what put him on the international stage uh, because of the controversy of this film, pure and simple. This film was controversial then. It is controversial to this day. But controversy sticks around controversial works of art stay in people's mind while mm -hmm. there's films before this they did not yeah um yep. this is what really broke him um uh, hmm. let's talk we'll talk a little bit about jeffrey wright here uh, the director, uh, born 1959, Australian director and screenwriter who gained cult success with Romper Stomper. This also broke him as well. Uh, it was his second film after Loverboy, 1989. Romper Stomper was hmm. 92. Metal Skin, his Rev Head movie. Uh, I don't know, Carbogans, Hoons, however you know them across the globe. In Australia, they were called Rev Heads in 1994. <laughs> um, he also had a little bit of uh, cult success in America with Cherry Falls, a teenage uh, horror film starring uh, Rest in Peace, Brittany Murphy. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've never huh. seen it. I want to see it, though. I'm very, very curious. He also did a reimagining of Macbeth in 2006 with Sam Worthington. Uh, now, then there, there was the economic crash of 2007 as well. Uh, this and he felt and he wasn't in great favor in the uh, Australian film industry or scene, if you will, because he was always a bit controversial. Uh, he never has never ever played by the rules. He's never subscribed to the way Hollywood makes films or, or um, the dominant Australian film industry makes films as well. He continued to fall out of favor. So that's why his film career never really continued and built up momentum, became the great mm -hmm. director, which I've, I feel that he is and should be seen on a global stage. Um, as you know as a great film director but he's always taught as well um, in Melbourne universities uh, the art of sc uh, screen making um, and he did come back to uh, produce create produce 
the Romper Stomp TV series where he directed the first two episodes as well. Um, and as we said before, this was because of Donald Trump's presidency, uh, mm -hmm. anti-Muslim sentiment across the globe as well. He saw that uh, it was the issues, race issues are still significant uh, and even building up more uh, fire yeah, um, yeah, more heat across the globe because of the whole Donald Trump anti-Muslim thing. Um, so he came back to do Romper Stomper. Um, uh, but he has never changed. He's never changed his attitudes, his beliefs. Mm. He has always spoken his mind, whether it's in a public forum or through his films. So I respect him to this day. And he is my favorite Australian film director. And... Mm. Um, and I can't imagine that his other films are more powerful than this one, though, Romper Stomper. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, that's uh, Russell Crowe. Let's talk about Russell Crowe before we go into the synopsis of the film. <laughs> Russell Crowe. Okay, Romper Stomper, just uh, straight off the bat, basically it's about a gang of skinheads in Melbourne, uh, in the suburbs of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Okay. Um, Russell Crowe is the leader of the gang. He is the father figure, the cult of personality for this crew. He plays a character called Hando, mm -hmm. H-A-N-D-O. Uh, what did you think of Russell Crowe in this film, man? When I first saw, I, when I first, well, obviously I rewatched this, but when I first saw it, I didn't know who Russell Crowe was because I saw this probably within a year or two it came out. And I just remember being very um, attracted is not the right word, but I mean, he's got a very magnetic personality and, and the simple fact in retrospect, I don't think anyone else. Um, and this is, I mean, I'm, I know you agree with this, but I don't think anyone else could have pulled this character off in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. Russell Crowe fucking nailed this role. He really, really did. And just doing some of my own independent research, um, he's a very much a, a method actor. And he was, he's obviously the leader of this gang, but also behind the scenes, he was the leader of the gang out and about. You know, Russell Crowe is a, you know, people know him as an actor, but he, he's a tough. He, uh, to borrow a wrestling term, he works very stiff. All of his uh, fight scenes were very, very stiff. And he took that mentality out into the world. Um, he got his whole crew riled up one night and got them all arrested while filming, you know, and, um, and he's a, he's a rugby player. I mean, he plays fucking rugby. You know, I don't have a lot of rules in life, but one rule I have, if I'm ever in a bar and I see Marines or rugby players, their drinks are always on me because if the shit goes down and this has actually saved my ass a couple times, I know they're going to be able to handle themselves. So <laughs> Rugby players are no people you want to fuck with. So that's that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, quick bit of context: he's referring to rugby union, not rugby league or American football. Yeah, right. uh, it becomes it comes from Britain, the sport of rugby union. Uh, I won't go into the specifics here. This is not a sports <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Look it up if you are curious. Um, 
Now, I saw this film around 2000, 2005, somewhere, and all of that. I saw it in New Zealand. I am Australian-born, but grew up in New Zealand. Um, I hadn't seen Russell Crowe in anything beforehand. This was before he was uh, really even famous, even in 2005. This was really before you hit the big time. Um, if I have my dates wrong, I am sorry. This is just how I know Russell Crowe and his career. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was very, very impressed. And upon doing my own independent research as well, listening to Jeffrey, listening to a Jeffrey Wright interview talking about Russell Crowe, casting Russell Crowe, Wright said himself that he believes uh, that no one could have pulled off uh, Russell Crowe, an Australian actor. No other actor could have done it in Australia at that time. And uh, yeah. based on my own uh, knowledge of Australian actors and Australian film around that time in 1992. I 100% agree with him. He did approach it in a very method style, definitely. Um, Russell Crowe is a self-taught actor. He never learned about Stanislavski at NIDA, big uh, mm. drama school here. Um, he's not Hugh Jackman in that way whatsoever. Um, he, he lives the role. Uh, he uh, goes in depth into the character and also the history and uh, the referential context uh, of what the character is about. Like, for example, to clarify, with Hando playing the neo-Nazi bonehead, uh, hmm. he did things like he was in Britain at the time when he got the role, yeah? So he took himself off to a bunch of football matches and sat among a sea of football hooligans mm. uh, with, with a camera and a recorder yeah to to get mm. the, to get the images and to get the sound and to sit there to immerse himself in the atmosphere uh, his friend was saying what are you doing put those away they're gonna kill you <laughs> they're gonna absolutely <laughs> kill you mate <laughs> it was like yeah click click <laughs> gotcha <laughs> Uh, so he's a very funny man, Russell, as well. Um, he read Mein Kampf. He read, uh, yeah, yeah, he read yeah. the uh, history of uh, violent, I forget the name of the book exactly, paraphrasing, the history of violent murders throughout uh, history. Wow. He, he played Nazi propaganda audio on reverse whilst playing Wagner, Hitler's favourite composer at the same time and used to um, play it during the day and go to sleep with this shit <laughs> to, <laughs> this, wow. so, yeah yeah um um, as you say, he's a tough, he's a goon as well. And that's the way he approaches his character research and getting into character as well. He pulls no punches and goes in fists flying. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. He... Uh, Important to note as well, he balances, his out, balances it out as well. He also, just as Russell Crowe, would force himself to eat in Melbourne at the time, uh, in the 90s would go to three Asian restaurants a week as well yeah so he wow. didn't become too much the character of Hando because I've done a bit of method acting myself you got to be careful with mm. the psychology of that you know what I mean you can't go too deep in the character into the character because you want to pull your own self back you want to pull your own self out of it so he did that to, did that to maintain a psychological equilibrium as well but um 
he is meth he is a method actor in a very goon style <laughs> way of doing things definitely so he didn't go full daniel day lewis but he went pretty fucking close he went pretty fucking close to daniel day lewis <laughs> definitely um uh, the only difference between him and Robert De Niro's method acting approaches is that Robert De Niro had more formal training. Yeah, if you, if you know oh. what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, Robert De Niro, Travis Bickle, uh, taxi driver. Oh. He was a taxi driver in that area of New York six months prior, even longer maybe, to doing uh, the role of Travis Bickle. So that's, yeah, the only difference between those two is Robert De Niro has formal training. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and... Uh, and of course, he went to the gym a lot, did Russell Crowe, because uh, Hando, you know what I mean? And so he is the cult figure. He is the gang leader and his look, his way of speaking as well, his overall demeanor, the way he composes himself. You see why he's the leader of the gang, yeah? Yeah, he's fucking ripped. Yeah, yeah. And um, Smart, intelligent is not the word I would use for Hando, but he has the necessary rhetoric. He knows the propaganda to convince all of the other gang members to manipulate them psychologically well enough for them to follow him. At the start of the film, pretty much, mostly pretty much, not blindly, but devoutly, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he he was really the epitome of a cult leader. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he was cult, I mean, leader, he cult was, personality. Yeah, he he was very charming, and he was. I mean, yeah, obviously he's a psychopath, but he's really a the sociopath. The way he psychologically manipulated all these people, um, you really see it with his relationships. But then also towards the movie, we'll get into this at the end, at the end of the movie. But you really see him go into manipulation mode, and he was. Yeah, he was he was all in and he was like I said, he was a definition of a cult leader. Yeah, absolutely. That's what he was. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's get into the uh synopsis here. Mott, any moment you want to mark out, just shout out Mark or whatever you like. <laughs> um, anything you want to bring up based on your own research or feelings, etc. We'll uh go there. All right, so. Okay, the plot, synopsis, etc. A gang of violent young neo-Nazi skinheads from Footscray, Victoria, Australia, attack three Vietnamese Australian teenagers in a tunnel at Footscray Station, brutally beating two of them. That's uh, two males and a female. The, uh, it's, um, and also the gang is around 20s to 30s, probably the later end of 20s. Uh, these Vietnamese kids, probably about early 20s as well. Uh, the gang is led by Hando, a violent, reckless and unpredictable psychopath with strong white nationalist beliefs and homicidal tendencies. I'm reading this from Wikipedia as well. <laughs> so they're not necessarily my words. It's just the way Wikipedia has worded this. With his yeah, friend. Yeah. Uh, yep. I was going to real quick, yeah, with, uh, with a Marco moment. Um, I know, listen, I know you're a big fan of movies that start off with a quick start um you know obviously there wasn't a murder right away but this the scene they started that movie off with them beating those kids was mm. i mean you're 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 15 seconds in and you're fucking holy shit the the violence escalates right absolutely. off the bat 
absolutely um, good point good point the atmosphere the tone of this movie is set set up straight away is conveyed immediately first of all you have the theme music uh john clifford white he did the original mm -hmm. music uh for the movie uh the the theme music the orchestral score that starts oh. off the film oh, how good is that fucking heavy as shit is what it was how Jesus. good is that um it's uh I would liken it to the theme music for Jaws, you know what I mean? For setting that ominous tone yeah. straight away, if you will. Um, it's like uh, like a funeral dirge, a funeral song as well. Uh, has that uh, atmosphere to it, that tone to it. Uh, it's a wonderfully well composed piece of music. Do check it out on Spotify there if you get a chance there, Sinists. Um, yeah, no, but, but it's but it's ominous though. It is definitely ominous. And then, as uh, the Vietnamese teenagers. Uh, the young Vietnamese, they're skateboarding down into the underpass at Footscray. Well, it's not actually a Footscray station because there's no <laughs> yeah. underpass there, but in the film it is, yeah. Um, uh, when they're, you know, you hear them, you know, shouting and having a fun time as well. In Because the sound design of this film, not only the score and the actual uh, oi uh, well, inverted commas. We'll, I'll discuss why it's inverted commas later. The oil right. punk music as well is really good. Um, but and the orchestral score is really good. The theme music's really good, but so is the sound design. Because as yeah. they're skateboarding down, you hear the skateboard wheels on the asphalt. Um, and you hear them shouting and having a good time, the Vietnamese teenagers. But did you hear the dogs barking? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, as well. Um, angry dog barks as well. So, and that already sets up an uneasy, you know, feeling when you're watching slash listening to it as well. They yeah. come down into the tunnel, and then in slow motion, they they go go around the bend into the tunnel, and there they are, Hando and his gang, in slow motion, leering at them menacingly. Yeah. 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 So yeah, and this, and the the violence in that scene, like you said, with with the sound, like every time they kick those kids, it just reverberated. You could feel it, mm -hmm. you know. And mm -hmm. like when uh when he stopped that skateboard, and there was just this this subtle moment, it just stopped, and it was like, but it like um how do I explain it? Like the skateboard stopped, but the echo reverberated and just kind of faded out, like their future, and it was fucking surreal. Um, Absolutely, because yeah. you have this build-up, you have this build-up, and then Hando, Hando, Russell Crowe puts his boot onto the skateboard, stopping it automatically like that, and it yeah. pretty much goes silent. Well, they, no, sorry, it's still slow motion. They he throws them up against the wall, one uh, a Vietnamese guy up against the wall, and then he comes up to him and goes. Typical bonehead bullshit, but delivered yeah. in this cold, precise way by Russell Crowe, uh, paraphrasing, uh, what are you doing here? This is not your country, which country. is very much an Australian racist byline, uh, tagline, yeah? Which has been yeah. used not only by boneheads in this country, but I'll get into that, hmm. yeah? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And then beatings occur. The beating occurs and it's brutal. It is brutal because, um, as I said before, two males, one female, all three get beaten. Yeah. All yeah. three, all three get dealt to. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll go into this a little bit more, but yeah, they were about 20 or 30, but they did have a youngin with them. Um, yes. Also, Bubs. which we'll, we'll play into the movie. Mm. Yeah. Bubs, which we'll play into the movie later, but that was, it was just very well done how we introduced the characters without actually saying anything. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, because then there's one of the skinheads who middle finger to the camera and yep. just shouts fuck off. Oh. Yeah. 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 Which will be a, hmm? which will be a soundbite someday. That's just a great, there's some really good soundbites in this yeah. movie. So absolutely. Absolutely. And then after the fuck off, you have boom title yep. romper stomper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and also just before that, uh, you have Hando under Russell Crowe and titles and Davy as well. They're the two characters you're given the names to. That becomes very important later on. There's a reason why only those two are introduced at the start. Yeah. Okay. So altercation in the tunnel. Then uh, they go off to their local pub. Uh, okay. Um, and now there's about, I'm not sure of the number, around six or seven, eight of them. They go into the local pub. It's their watering hole, as we call it down here. It's their local mm. drinking spot. Um, two of the, uh, I don't know if I want to use the term punk girls. Um, yeah. Skinhead um, girls. Skinhead girls. Yeah. Uh, Jacqueline, Jacqueline McKenzie, uh, who... We'll get to her, but she called them gang moles, M-O-L-E-S. Uh, yeah, correct. So maybe that may be a relevant term for the time in Australia in 1992. Yeah. Um, but they show up, all the big men are here, you know, and um, they join the gang there. Um, and then uh, um, you talked about young bubs there. Um, this guy's <laughs> the teenager of the gang. I'm talking 14, 15 years old of Navy. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, a little Spitfire. A little Spitfire. He is kicked out by the Patreon, uh, the bar owner as well. Um, they kick him out. Uh, and um, and then they talk about um, the uh, how they had Asian uh, patrons in the bar. This, the, the boneheads mm -hmm. start hassling the patron. Uh, the patron of the bar, the bar owner, that there was Asians in the bar. What are they doing here? This is our place. He says, "No, it's my place. Uh, if you've got a if you've got a problem with that, you can fuck off." Um, <laughs> and he rubs his bald head with his finger, sort of thing, so to say, "Yes, yeah. I do have a problem." You know, so um, all the attitudes of the characters are pretty much without going into huge, you know, dramatic speeches and monologues. They're conveyed. You know what this gang's about from the beating to the bar you know what i mean beat by beat um and then we're introduced ah let's go back a little bit because we have gabe gabrielle uh, uh the female lead played by jacqueline mckenzie um she's been introduced before this though as well uh before you get to the pup yeah this uh where she is oh. sorry no i'm just saying was... no no what i know about the movie um was fucking creepy you know it's, i mean we'll, we'll we'll definitely get into this later um yeah, because we'll, as we're watching the movie 
you don't know this at the time, um, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. fucking creepy. That's all I'm going to say. Yes, we won't spoil why this uh, scene after the tunnel is creepy. Before they get to the pub, that is. Again, I'm reading from Wikipedia. But um, we see her, uh, basically, she is in some suburban flat or you know house, whatever you call it from whatever country right. you are. Um, um, and uh, she is waiting outside for her caretaker. She's around, I think, uh, roughly she's around 18 to 21 years old in the film, the character yeah. of Gabe, yeah? She's waiting for her older, uh, much more, much richer caretaker to come mm-hmm. along, yeah, um, and get her out of this uh, little domestic situation she has with her junkie boyfriend who's going berserk and smashing the house up behind her. Um, the older caretaker and a Rolls Royce or a Mercedes, I'm not sure, but some rich, rich ass car. There's a Rolls Royce. I think Rolls Royce a Rolls Royce later, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then he brought, uh, he brought his, yes, he he brought his heavy yes. with him. Yes, because it's a German car. Yeah. Rolls Royce. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's mm-hmm. right. Um, brings, uh, was it English Bob? I think it was English think, Pete, like British, it, yeah. British Pete. Yep, comes along. He's the heavy to deal with the junkie uh, that the rich caretaker of Gabe has uh, brought with him. Um, and uh, um, and at first you think this is a benevolent caretaker. This is someone Gabe has called on before to get her out of these dicey situations. She obviously puts herself into. We both know the type. Um, both grown up mm-hmm. with the type. You may have both been the type ourselves in yeah. the past yeah. <laughs> um, so so we're so you're familiar as seen as soon as you see here you know what Gabe's about and what his situation's about uh the British heavy comes in grabs the junkie or perhaps if you'd stop struggling sir <laughs> yeah. and, and a very proper voice for a big heavy which is hilarious and he goes oh yeah, as you like it <laughs> that was like the one the only really one campy part of the whole movie I was just like I just kind of wish he would have whipped that guy's ass but he's just and the, the, the junkie weighs maybe a buck 30 and the heavy is 260. He's grabbing him. Yeah. I mean, just put him out. Yeah, it but was, yeah. <laughs> it was funny. Plenty of violence to come, so. Uh, indeed, indeed. Um, now, uh, Malcolm, being the caretaker's name is Gabe, specifically addresses him as Malcolm. This is important mm. later on. Um say did you did he hurt you at all no 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 but he's on the roies which is uh, some sort of pill um you know an abbreviation australian abbreviation for some sort of pill when he's going berserk um have you been taking the med malcolm asks have you been taking the medicine that you should be taking um and she says yeah yeah yeah, i've been taking it but then he pulls up a whole bunch of other pharmaceuticals which she shouldn't be taking um <laughs> and she's obviously taking those on a regular basis it's revealed why she should be taking specific medicine and she's not and the consequences of that are played out are shown later on um but then you begin to see uh that gabe's situation is uh, really fucked because this guy is uh, reveals himself to be a creepy pedo yeah yeah and another sociopath i mean he he doesn't get what he wants and he starts manipulating her right off the bat yeah yeah yeah. it's just some kind of power play when he doesn't get what he wants and i'm sure we can all put two and together what he wanted so yeah absolutely um without being too graphic he basically um they he embraces her in a paternal fatherly protective way to begin with uh but then he basically sniffs her and says 
uh, I've missed you badly. Hand comes down lovingly from the cheek down towards the breast area. There you go. Okay, this guy's a piece of shit. Um, Gabe has no other option but to call on this guy. Her life is quite screwed up. That we switch over to the pub. Uh, Davey, Davey is Hando's right-hand man in the mm-hmm. gang, in the Bonehead gang. Uh, Hando uh, says to Davey as he has seen Gabe in the corner, nodding off, drinking her beer, yeah, from the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Uh, he says, who's that? Davey says, I don't know. The uh, skinhead girls, the, uh, the gang moles uh, say, I don't know, but she looks like a complete space cadet. And then Hando, you can see it in his eyes, goes, yeah, I'll have a piece of that. Kisses Davy on the forehead, gives him the noogie, the, you know, noogie. Yeah. On, and um, cut, next scene. Um, they're outside <laughs> a shopping mall, sucking face, Hando and Gabe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that. Uh, but it was set up from the situation that uh, Gabe... Uh, basically, um, she uh, looks for protection from figures who aren't uh, male figures who aren't really good for her. Yeah, you see how she's yeah. just gone from one bad situation to the next. So it's justified uh, visually, at least anyway. Okay. Now. Fry pan to the fire. Absolutely. All right. So they've started up obviously a bit of a relationship and they're outside the shopping mall um an interesting dynamic starts though here uh between davy hando and gabe because in in essence uh a framework for this movie is also a love triangle yeah between those three um, and the first signs of this love triangle forming uh, happen when uh, the um, the jacket, the, the jacket that Gabe mm-hmm. uh, becomes in, uh, basically infatuated. infatuated with. Thank you. She uh, looks, uh, they're window shopping, if you will. Uh, Gabe looks at the jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Gabe looks at the jacket, says, oh, that's beautiful. Hando goes, do you want that jacket? And he goes, yep, all right. And goes and picks, I'm not sure if it's a rubbish bin or a fire hydrant, but some big metal object. Move! (laughs) Straight through the window, grabs the jacket. And uh, and then Davey goes in with his elbow to get rid of the glass as well. He helps. Hando grabs the jacket, gives it to Gabe. Of course, the alarm's gone off and they bolt, Yeah. So by window shopping, Gene means he threw something through a window and literally took it from the window. So yes, <laughs> side note, but um, I guess Daniel Pollock actually really fucked up his hand on that glass for real. Yes, he did. Uh, he did mess up with that hand. Thank you, thank you. Because uh, this is what further forms the love triangle. They go back to the squat, a place yep. where they are living for free, an abandoned warehouse. English term there, squat. Do you use that in America? Squat. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Cool. Yep. Um, and yeah, Davy's cut his hand, um, and you see the three of them: Gabe, Hando, and Davy Boy. They're sitting there, um, looking at Davy's hand. So you've got the love triangle virtually in an actual physical shape there in that shot. Yeah. Um, Hando's like um, he looks at it, and goes, "Ah, yeah, it's just a flesh wound. It's not it's hardly deep at all. <laughs> Bit of glass in it, though." Uh, he covers uh, Davy's mouth, covers Davy's mouth, 
comes down yep. his mouth, then pulls out the glass straight away. And then he looks at me, oh, like, um, do you want to, do you want me to operate? You know, like, you'll be right, mate, pull up your bootstraps, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, very Aussie, very bonehead. Uh, but then Gabe actually uh, bandages the wound. Yeah, she tends to the wound for him in mm -hmm. a loving motherly uh, type fashion, yeah? Which is, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this more, but um, I really, it's kind of a sidebar, but I really enjoyed how Jeffrey Wright really defined the, the female, um, not only in a romantic relationship, but how they took care of, of them. But we'll get into that a little bit later in the movie, um, which is also a very interesting facet of, of these kind of outcasts and miscreant um, clans, I guess we'll call it. So, yes. Um, and another thing, too, uh, um, speaking of squats, shows um, Gabe actually calls Hando out. It's like, what are you guys squatting here? It's like, no, we actually pay rent. But no, uh, they, they, we later find out they're full of shit. So, yeah, it's a squat. It's a squat. Um, um, now we'll get into the family aspect now, actually, as we move okay. forward. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, what I mean by the family aspect as well, because it's a gang. Uh, you have people basically have come from domestic situations, be it Hando, Davey, Gabe, the other members of the gang, Cackles, uh, Spud, certainly Spud, the, uh, the young kid, mm -hmm. uh, the young member. Um, uh, they've left... Um, basically families that have fallen apart and they're looking for a family which the gang is uh the, you know represents which the gang is for them for all of them and that's the thing with gangs uh whether it be neo-nazis be it the crips be it the bloods be it whatever mm -hmm. ethnic background be it white gangs as well because they certainly you know they certainly exist of course um this is transcends race and it is global gangs represent the family unit for people when that family unit has you know fallen apart yeah basically when people find their tribe but they tribe tribalism is a good way to put it as well absolutely yeah. um and jeffrey wright wanted to show this about the gang as well you talked about how um russell crowe took them all out drinking one <laughs> night as well um in the preparation of not only just the individual actors as individual characters but they were um this sense of a gang slash family jeffrey wright really wanted this to come across in the movie uh you know through the boneheads um and so they would do things like as you say they would go to the pub together they would go to the gym together to physical uh, physical competition and working out to push yeah. each other but when one fell back to help them out to spot them with the weights to encourage them on etc um so um he so they spent a lot of time together a lot of creative exercises outside of filming away from filming to create that gang slash family unit mm -hmm. um because jeffrey rice said if it was if he just had two-dimensional characters just straight neo-nazis just spouting propaganda without any love shown between them yeah i mean there is mm -hmm. a hierarchy that is obvious as you watch the movie but there is yeah. also there is i mean that love dissolves definitely i will discuss why as we go on but there is that bond between them yeah if not love there is that bond between them yeah 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 and, and then the, um the moles i guess we'll call them i, I didn't realize that that's a good way to put it but uh they they had a very important role and i really thought that he 
he did a good job showing that it was, I mean, yeah, there's the guys, there's a tough guy, but they, they need support too. They need moms. You know, they didn't have moms. I mean, they were, it wasn't just, I mean, it was, there was definitely a lot of sexual tension. There was a lot of romance, you know, I'll I'll use the word romantic very, Mm -hmm. very loosely here without getting too graphic, but I'm sure you know what I mean. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, but um, there's a very maternal aspect to all the girls, Gabe and the other girls um, care, you know, tending to them and taking care of them. And, you know, with Gabe with the bandages, like you talked about, that was how her and Davey really kind of connected. But I mean, she was taking care of him because otherwise, you know, Hannah would have let his fucking hand rot just because, you know, so yeah, just showing that maternal aspect of, of the gang, which is very, you know, is a very important in all, and not even just gangs, just counterculture in general, you know, yeah. just yeah. for, yeah. you know, Thank any, you. any, I have, you know, a lot of independent artists and musicians and friends and, and um, women are a very large part of that scene, you know, taking care of people. Cause when, I mean, as you know, you, you're, you're an actor. Um, when people, they invest themselves, they, they, you don't have resources, you don't have food, you don't have shelter. And that's where I've always respected um, the women in that aspect. I know I'm going off on a huge fucking tangent. Right. But I really respected what Jeffrey Wright did here with, with those characters. Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, this is something that every person feels and needs. Um, and everyone, if, if, if shit goes bad, if shit goes wrong in their lives as well, anyone can end up in this situation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted, and he wanted to show that not only it's not only boneheads have these messed up attitudes in Australia, but everyone, people from across all situations, um, can have it rough growing up, can have families that fall apart, can be looking for that family unit, can end up mm-hmm. in these gang situations as well. And if he didn't show that. Um, it wouldn't mean anything when things go wrong. It wouldn't mean anything to anyone when they see what happens to the gang and how mm-hmm. shit goes south. If that makes sense, yeah. Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I that's mean, what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, I mean, we don't really get. Actually, it's kind of. Um, I just thought of this, but I mean, you only really get into the backgrounds of Gabe and Davy. Um, Davy came from more modern, but Gabe comes from money. I mean, yeah. her family, yeah. she comes from, I mean, it's fucked up money, you know, mm-hmm. which we'll get into later on in the movie, but she comes from money, yeah. you know, so, and just, yeah. uh, it's not just, you know, it's not yes. just poor people that they're attracted to these kind of things, so. Or that um, things can go wrong. Things can go wrong for rich people as well. Yeah, is what yeah. it shows there, definitely. Good point, good point. Okay, um, so, uh, okay. Um, now, so you have that family unit unit that you see within the gang. Absolutely. Now, Jeffrey Wright's very clever with this as well, because he counterbalances that with the character of Hando, <laughs> uh, with his attitudes and beliefs and perspectives, yeah, with his yeah. neo-Nazi uh, way of looking at things. This is shown beautifully when the, uh, he takes Gabe, yeah, after he's done the whole, mm-hmm. um, oh, we now this isn't a squat, we pay rent here because he's thrown her over the shoulder, <laughs> over his yep. shoulder to go up to his room for we know what, yeah? <laughs> um, so they do the business at night and the next morning, the next morning's a very interesting scene 
we see all of the propaganda, all of the trapping, neo-Nazi trappings within Hando's room. First of all, there's a giant swastika above the bed. Yep. Yeah, that's the main centerpiece. And then you see all this other neo-Nazi Hitler shit surrounding the walls. Yeah. Um, and she asks, why, why are you into why, why are you into all of this? And then um, basically he gives his little diatribe on uh, how he hates Asians and how Asians due to migration, uh, basically eradicating the white culture uh, in Australia yeah. and in particular his area of uh, Melbourne. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's nonsense. It's, as we all know, it's a fucked up way of looking at things. There's no real yeah. knowledge or perspective or the, the why it's led to this, you know, there's no multifaceted nuanced way of looking at things whatsoever. It's all surface value propaganda um, that he's spouting, but he's, but um, as we talked about the preparation for Hando, Russell Crowe was very aware of this. He knew this is what he would have to adopt and can convey. He does it in a very, if want, for want of a better word, eloquent, uh, well-spoken manner. Yeah? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. For, yep. I mean, he, he throws on the charm. Um, he throws, and throws he, on the charm. Fully, yeah, he's fully invested in his bullshit. Um, and yeah. it is fucking bullshit. And um, I didn't realize this till later on. Um but I mean, skinheads are supposed to be working class, hardworking class people. But we never see any one of these assholes go to work. No, we they're don't. Actually, uh, they're, they're, I mean, I got no problem with squatters. I know people that have squatted. I understand the, the culture and the reason. But these guys are on fucking welfare. I mean, later on, they're talking about they're cashing their dole, their dole checks from the government. Yes. So and out. He goes on about hating the system, being anti the system, but they rely on the system. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it was like complete hypocritical bullshit. You know, just they're blaming the immigrants for taking their jobs. Well, if you would get a fucking job, they wouldn't be taking your jobs. Yes. Bring people in if you would get your ass to work. You know, yeah. classic sociopath. It's everyone else's fault. And I'm like, after I rewatched it, I was like, what a fucking idiot. Yeah, he is. That's the yeah. thing. That's the thing. Um, yeah. And he is that surface value, two dimensional propaganda, idiot, idiot character, just presented in a very shiny, appealing way for people that are lost. Yeah. For yeah. people that are, yeah, to create that cult of personality, that cult leader, because that, that is what Hando captured. Uh, that's the character of Hando and what Russell Crowe perfectly conveyed as the character of Hando, not only in his uh, verbiage and the way he speaks his rhetoric, but also physically fit you know he, yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, he's very physically imposing um you know he's got the big um he's got the huge fucking swash tattoos he's got the weird awkward neck tribal tattoos um, that's weird so he that's, does, yeah yeah that was kind of odd but the tribal tattoos was very 90s doesn't really fit the whole look nowadays whatsoever but it was a very 90s in australia slash new zealand thing it was just one of those things yeah yeah, I came like yeah, I think that came over the states probably about ten years later. So that was okay. it was a very okay. very meathead kind of tattoo thing, but not 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 my meatheads and meathead like jocks. Yes, um, you see all these yes. big muscly wrestlers with their big fancy 
Um, and I'm not talking about The Rock. Rock's got like legit table tri- tribal tattoos, and I would never talk shit about The Rock, but that's another story. Yeah. But with that, but yeah, he's a very, sorry, I'm yeah, sorry. he's a yeah, yeah, he's a very physically imposing character, and that really leads to his his leadership. So. Absolutely, because in the scene when he's spouting uh, his propaganda, he's doing push-ups on a bar. He flips over to his knees to do crunches as well. Yeah. So it's the whole package. He's presenting the whole propaganda package, cult figure, cult leader package. Uh, there to Gabe as well, who's very young and impressionable, uh, definitely. Um, yeah. He reads her some of Mein Kampf as well. He shows her a map that has become all Asian businesses where it used to be a white area. Um, And he also says, which is very Australian neo-Nazi way of looking at things and speaking for 1992 as well. Uh, And today, to this day, Australia. Um, I don't want to go the same way as the fucking Abo, meaning Aborigine. Yep. And the hip hypocrisy of that being that white people you know what i mean yeah are the invaders yeah you're preaching the choir there my friend yeah so point being overall that jeffrey wright has shown the gang family unit but has also shown hando as this two-dimensional propaganda spouting uh asshole as well yeah you know what i mean so there's that balance of representation there as well which leads on to the uh which is all uh leads on to the um Hando's demise at the end of the film, where this whole gang unit ends up, where this propaganda, this simple way of uh, thinking gets you in the end. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Um, Then, uh, after that, we have... the boys from Canberra, um, Australian, <laughs> capit- Australian Capital Territory uh, is another state. Canberra being the capital of Australia, we have the boneheads, the neo-Nazis from Canberra arrive and their uh, cult leader, their head figure is named Magoo. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of Magoo when he showed up? He was a fucking retard. Uh, you know sorry i probably shouldn't use that word um just uh he was just a probably a more caffeinated version of hando probably just very charismatic but more out there more outgoing and just very yeah he was just a a fucking idiot yeah a hundred percent hundred percent um you already see that he is an absolute asshole um when they arrive in the bed up car uh, they arrive outside the abandoned warehouse, outside the squat. Uh, Magoo's woman, as he refers to her as, uh, gets out of the car and drops all the beer. And he goes, what the fuck are you doing, woman? Use your brain sort of thing. So you automatically see, well, here's another charming figure, another charming male figure. Um, and they come in. Um, they interrupt uh, Gabe and Hando's little propaganda speeches here as little lessons uh, to Gabe. Um, important uh, little point, little moment, little beat in the film to point out. Magoo has brought one of uh, the boneheads, one of the gang members, uh, one of the lower down on the uh, oh, yeah. The letter, if you will, uh, for the uh, Canberra gang. Um, what was his name? His name was Flea. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. I'll see. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. The 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 guy who um, the guy has decided to join the navy. Yeah. Yep. Um, he be uh, he wanted to come as Hondo put a put a cannon fodder for the big machine. Cannon fodder for the system. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if uh, it'd be interesting to know what Flea was thinking, whether he wanted to get out of the gang or he just uh, really wanted just to shoot uh, torpedoes, yeah, to kill right. foreigners, as he said, pretty much conveys to Hando. Um, you could read it either way. Um, and also, um, and another beat there to note is when uh, Magoo pulls out the knife, yeah, to mm -hmm. to show off to Hando, yeah. Um, it was stolen from a military, the military museum in Canberra, um, and it was a knife from the Hitchley youth, yeah. Now, uh, automatically, again, Hando's entire world is knowing the propaganda of neo-Nazism, yeah, knowing about World mm -hmm. War II, um, all of the, the gimmicks, all of the trappings of this right-wing bullshit, he has it down mm. to a T, he looks at the knife, all the other skinheads, sorry, boneheads are going, oh, look at that, look at that, it's great, oh. he automatically goes, uh, cheap alloy uh, started making it towards the end of, the end of the war. 1945. He names the year. Um, he says that it's no good. It's, it's not legitimate. I'm not impressed. You have to do better to impress me. Hando, the leader of all Australian boneheads, pretty much is what he's saying <laughs> in that little moment. <laughs> yeah. um, Davey, though, is impressed by it and he, uh, he wants to buy it off him. Yeah. Um, yep. Magoo says 50 bucks. Um, Davey haggles with him. He's only got 30. Then uh, um, Hando gives him 20 bucks. Pay me back next doll check, next unemployment check. Yeah. Yep. There you go. Again, hey, we're anti the system. Fuck the government. Fuck the man. But keep giving us the doll check. Keep giving us the money so we can survive in the squat and effectively do nothing with our lives except beat up. Uh, young Vietnamese teenagers, yeah, right, yeah. And I actually missed that the first time I watched it. When I went back and watched it, I was like, I was just really respected. Oh, Jeffrey Wright, he throws these little things in there. Like if you don't, if you don't catch it right away, you're you're missing out. I was a one little line was such a huge personality indicator for these guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's, yeah, no, he's good, Jeffrey Wright. He knows what he's doing, definitely. All right, um, now. Going back a little bit for the next bit, uh, we were at the pub before. The boneheads were hassling the patron. Why were you uh, serving Asians in here? There's the racist slur, yeah, that they use for the Asians. I'm not going to say it. If you want to look it up, look it up. You know what I'm talking about. Um, but that term was used here in Australia. I'm not sure about America, but in the 80s and 90s, all the damn time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's still used to this day. And it's still used to this day in Australia um, and America, I do know as well. But it's certainly yeah. really far too prevalent back in the day. Um, the Vietnamese, uh, sorry. Um, yeah. The, the Sorry. Boneheads were saying to the patron, why were you serving the Asians in this pub? This is our place. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Oh, no, before we get there, um, 
actually before we get there because flea after this whole little transaction oh. with the hitler youth knife there's the party there's flea goes, any fucking parties in this stupid town whatever it is and then they have the bonehead party what did you think of the party scene Ah, uh, classic skinhead party. It was uh, a bunch of fucking drunk, very low IQ assholes headbutting each other, dry humping their women, um, you know, throwing up on themselves, passing out on the floor, sleeping yeah. on stairs, you know, um, just uh, and and I and the funny thing is I enjoy oi music, but obviously I don't enjoy like obviously the, the racist version but i mean yes. that, you know the, the music was spot on yeah yeah um, yeah you know that's that's definitely the kind of music that all skinheads listen to um mm-hmm. whether it's you know bonehead skinheads or not um I, I read something but i didn't find anything else to substantiate that the guy that wrote the music um he was surprised that um, neo-Nazis gravitated to his music, but I mean, what the fuck did he expect? I mean, especially with the lyrics. And it was... Okay, I Well, I just saw that one spot, so I, I don't have any actual documentation, so it just might be someone on Wikipedia just talking shit. No, I can touch on that. I can touch on that. Now, John Clifford White, who did the theme song, the orchestral theme song, uh, mm-hmm. he uh, wrote the lyrics for the oi music the oi bonehead uh nazi uh version of oi music for the film uh for the song uh for the songs that are played in the party especially but throughout the film um uh he wrote the lyrics uh now uh waffle on a podcast i listened to for research for this film as well um they made a good point now yeah it's bonehead music but if you listen to uh some of the lyrics that john clifford uh white wrote for these songs they're not complimentary yeah uh they go they're going about i'll kick you in the bum we're living in the (laughs) sewers they're quite derogatory you know what i mean um yeah yeah that doesn't it doesn't shine the uh the boneheads in a positive uh complimentary light um now in terms of how the neo-nazis gravitated towards these uh yeah uh towards these songs what happened these were these were session musicians that came in to uh perform the songs for the soundtrack now uh first off uh the music on the film is slightly different to the music that was on the official cd the soundtrack cd that was released now the neo-nazis actually a lot of neo-nazi uh oi bands took the music and made co- made um covers of their own of these songs white power music labels in russia released their own seven inches and 12 inches okay. unofficial releases romper stomper unofficial releases yeah and made the much more basically racist Nazi uh, versions of these tracks. Yeah, Me, um, I'm okay. not sure if they were wor- word for word or they changed the lyrics. Yeah, I didn't go. Uh, I didn't go out and try and find. You know, I don't want to hear them. Basically, hear these versions. Um, now there's been uh, as this movie, you know, is uh, seen in a wrong, incorrect, bad light. So is the soundtrack uh, as well. Um, 
a lot um, because and a few because a few bands have been attributed to being mm-hmm. a band of the soundtrack for the film in the first place. Like you know, Screwdriver. Yep, I was yep. gonna say. There you go. Uh, people thought it was Screwdriver was the band for the film. Yeah, I thought I, I, as a kid, I thought the same thing. It was before I had Google, so I just I just assumed so. Um, it's not screwdriver. Um, I think it's kind of yeah, ironic. Fuck them anyways. Yeah, yeah, because if you think about how screwdriver started off, then reformed and what they became as well, and how this film is seen in a wrong light as well, mm-hmm. there's a certain irony in all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's another, um, is it the, uh, sorry, I'm jumping forward in the notes just a little bit because I do have stuff. Uh, written down for the soundtrack. Uh, I think it's the Bastard Squad. Uh, The band on the soundtrack have also been called Master Race due to the German monologue in the beginning of the track Pulling on the Boots. No such band exists. Uh, Let me go through the uh, soundtrack stuff now. Yeah, John Clifford White, he also did the music for Metal Skin as well, which is very similar orchestral music to the theme song for okay. Rocker Stomper. Uh, White Power labels have bootlegged the tracks and released them as seven inches, 12 inches, White Power labels in Russia. Uh, the band Screwdriver, misattributed to the soundtrack. Uh, Master Race never existed some have also considered the bastard squad that's an australian oi punk band okay uh to have done the soundtrack during to the film credit at the end of the film uh, okay i read to, it too thank you from jason from the bastard squad uh but now why that is uh, i'm not sure uh jeffrey wright hasn't said it verbatim publicly on interviews etc um, but, but for research for Romper Stomper, he hung out in uh, unfavorable scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, with boneheads um, uh, to get interviews. Yeah. From yeah. the horse's mouth for a good couple of years before the film started, before filming started. He got out when they cottoned on what he was actually up to for his own safety. Yeah. I imagine Jason from the Bastard Squad was someone he would have talked to and got a lot of uh, invaluable information and uh, inspiration okay. from. That's my thinking. Yeah, that's my thinking for that. That makes um, sense. Okay. But it's not the Bastard Squad. It's not Screwdriver. It's not the Master Race. It's John Clifford White composing the music, doing the lyrics with session musicians. Yeah. And if you listen to the lyrics, as Waffle on the podcast pointed out, it's not painting them in a positive light. It's actually kind of taking the piss. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's funny. Uh, okay. It is, yeah, yeah, just to put that in context. Um, and the party scene, I want to point out here in terms of the filming style. Um, on episode one, we talked about how Diodato, uh, for his found footage with the documentary film crew of Cannibal Holocaust, adopted the cinema verite, the true to lifestyle of filming. This was shot on 16 millimeter cameras and then shot up mm-hmm. to 35 millimeter print, yeah, for screening and distribution because people take 35 millimeter uh, film more seriously than they do 16 millimeter. Yeah, 16 millimeter is seen as independent or cheap 
budget filmmaking okay. yeah but he wanted the 16 millimeter because you hold it up to your eye handheld and the camera is like another party member yeah it's jumping around yeah yeah it's head banging da 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 when we get to the fight scene which we're going to talk about next it's <laughs> there in the fight with them you know what i mean it does go to a more traditional style at times widescreen invisible camera um to get that more cinematic aspect because this film uh, chops and changes between the cinematic classical approach to filmmaking to that cinema verite, true to true to life in the muck of it filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, and this uh, party scene is a is the big example, and the fight scene, yeah, uh, the two big examples of how that cinema verite uh, uh, style is adopted, how it's effective, and the sixteen millimeter camera use is how they achieved that. Yeah, another point oh, I want to okay. another filmmaking. Um, uh, thing I want to point out is the did you notice how everything in this film is, looked blue cold metallic blue yeah yeah it was um very prevalent in um in his bedroom yeah it was very very blue um which was unique because that fucking big swastika banner was very red um but everything was so cold and but everything wrapped around that like you said was yeah, I didn't notice that till my my last viewing. I was like, oh yeah, I was like, huh, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, what you're looking at there, that's um, that's uh, that's film coloring, color scale as well in the post production uh, process of filmmaking as well. That's achieved. That's added in. Uh, why that was used, I believe, um, because you're looking at the fact they're squatting in industrial sites. Yeah, they're in an abandoned warehouse, stock, uh, stock dockyards. Yeah, um, everything is metallic. Everything is sparse. It is barren. They are there by themselves a lot, isolated from everyone else, and also mm. emotionally, a lot of the emotions are very cold. Yeah, yeah, uh, throughout this film as well. So you have the environment uh, as well as the emotions portrayed to create that cold blue metallic scale, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's totally. what, yeah, so well, that's why that blue coloring, that blue scale was used. Um, again, Jeffrey Wright knows what he's doing, knows what he's doing. All right, we'll get to my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> we talked about the pub. Uh, they were angry the Asians were there. After the party, um, Bubs and um, I think it's Cackles, the one with the spiders oh tattooed God. on his head, missing teeth, the most attractive of the gang. <laughs> um, <laughs> the patron is signing the papers over to the uh, Vietnamese business owners and his son. Vietnamese business owner is going to give the pub to his son's uh, restaurant bar for when they are older. Patron, you know, coming to the end of his days as well, wants his retirement. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Not according to Bubs and Cackles, who see the patron and the Vietnamese come out. Mm -hmm. It's going to, uh, you know, it's going to show the Vietnamese around. Bubs and Cackles see them dip back to the squad um, to burst into Hando's room with Magoo uh, and say, Asians down at the pub. Boom, they're out. Uh, all of the weapons, all of the bats get in the car. Um, Oi, music's playing and yeah. they're, off to the, they're off to the pub. Yeah. Um, okay. 
and you have the um, the Asian teenagers or young 20 year olds, however old they are. Um, they're hanging around the pool table waiting for dad to finish the business to sign the papers over properly, completely. Um, Hando walks in um, and he does his little kind of, I'm Mr. Cool Guy. Yeah, you know, little saunter in, uh, does this little catchphrase uh, um, of how you doing? And then boom, they're out, uh, the, the Vietnamese run off, uh, the boneheads chase them. And then you have one of the most extraordinary fight scenes I've ever seen in cinema. What did you reckon of this fight scene between the skinheads, uh, boneheads, and what is revealed to be a far greater number of Vietnamese, Vietnamese. <laughs> um, before I, I get into that, there, there's a few things I, um, I want to address first. Um, in listening to uh, Jeffrey Wright talk, I was very glad to see that the Vietnamese community of Australia was very happy with his portrayal mm -hmm. and how he supported them. Mm -hmm. So anyone that thought that he was doing this film to, um, what's the word, um, propagate any kind of Nazi bullshit, they can they're unfortunately they're wrong I'm, I'm not trying to be an asshole but i was i was very impressed how the vietnam you know how happy they were with their portrayal um the second thing about this is these guys aren't very smart this is 1992 um the vietnamese people literally just beat the largest most powerful military in the world in real life and this is the bloodline these guys come from. So why are they, I know they're taking, they're supposedly taking their jobs, but I mean, really? I mean, how fucking stupid are you? I mean, they literally held off the U.S. military for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you going to do to them? Um, and the third thing with this is, um, you know, to any retractors, I'm saying this was a, a nasty propaganda movie. At this point, I looked at, we're 28 minutes into the, into the movie. This yeah. is where the Nazis start getting their ass kicked. Yeah. So yeah. they were only powerful or doing anything cool for a third of the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I mean, the rest of it, they, and yeah, just the numbers, they kept coming. It was fucking awesome. It was really well done. Um, just, I mean, it was just 10 minutes of fucking, yeah, kids everywhere. And uh, the guy that played Tiger was, was awesome. He was like, mm -hmm. I want to say he was the, he was, it wasn't the handle because he's like a good human being, but he was the, the leader and just getting people going. And he was, you know, getting people from the factory, get people from, yeah. you know, but they handed their asses to him. And it really showed that, you know, they're only tough when they've got their numbers, but all of a sudden when they don't have their numbers, all of a sudden they're running like a bunch of fucking scolded dogs. Absolutely. Um, um uh, Tiger was, is played by Tony Lee. Uh, I mentioned him at the start of the podcast here. Um, yeah, he was fantastic uh, and good point as well. 28 minutes in, we've seen very much through the eyes of the boneheads how great they think they are as well. Um, and with no real or interaction with the um, with anyone else with any uh, other groups that um, outnumber them um, at this point uh, up up until this point um, because there's only um, three of the Vietnamese again like in the uh, in the uh, 
underpass oh. in the tunnel at the start. Yeah, there's only three yeah. to begin with until they start arriving in cars. Yeah, tigers um, you know, <laughs> yeah. spurred them on. And I'm not sure how many show up, at least a couple of hundred as opposed to the a dozen at most boneheads. Yeah. And I'm talking bubs and about four girls in that dozen as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, I mean, lost a couple guys in that fight. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, Magoo, Magoo down, gets, uh, Magoo gets a flower pot brick slammed yeah. onto his head. Yeah. Yeah. The guy looks like Goldman Pyle got it too. Um, yeah. It was, uh, if I saw this in the movie theater at this point, I probably would be standing up my seat cheering right now. Yeah. 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 I had my hands raised. <laughs> I had my arms uh, raised watching it. Definitely. Yeah. But just how you described the, the, um, the party scene um really makes sense with this scene obviously like we talked about it was it was really well done um you know if, if i i'm not very cinematically um what's the word apt very well but though how you explained it it was um gives me an even greater appreciation for what they did because they were all over the fucking place literally yeah i mean they're yeah. running i mean everywhere and it was it was great it was really well done and it was there was there's no pause, there was no pause for breath for the viewer to take a breath uh, throughout this fight scene and goes on for a good 10 minutes as well. Um, this yeah. is from outside the pub. They're running um, down the alleyways. They're, um, they're being chased on motorbikes and cars by the Vietnamese as well. Even when there's only two or three people there, um, it's a bonehead beating uh, one of the Vietnamese. Vietnamese, but then um, the motorbike or scooter comes along. Oh, that was great. Bonehead gets smacked in the head, then another 12 <laughs> appear out of nowhere, kick the shit out of them. They get back to the squat. Um, they get in, they try and get up, you know, into a window up the top, uh, the uh, pile of tires, but then they try, they rip the Vietnamese are opening up the fence, bordering the property. Nope. Uh, they've got, you know, nunchucks, however you say that word um you know uh, chains on sticks trying to bat them off but they just keep coming and coming and coming um they, and they get then um when they block off uh their squat they think they're safe yep. nope next second not a pause for breath windows broken they're coming yep. inside um um uh bubs is screaming why are we fighting uh is a not is a spider i think the the comedian bonehead yeah, yeah. he's going because there's fucking billions of them you little idiot there's fucking <laughs> billions of them there's just panic panic everyone's crying gabe is on the floor shaking not quite having what not, not quite showing what happens to her later on but you get a little hint yeah. of that um <laughs> And then once they get inside, Hando goes straight down with Bubs behind him. It's only him and Bubs get to the front door, um, ready to for the final standoff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whilst everyone else, Davy at the front being second in command, everyone else behind Davy just standing and Davy shaking no at Hando. And it's going, you all look like a bunch of gutless rabbits. We, um, uh, we finish this now. And Davy being the only one who can reason with him, who can make Hando see some logic in this fucked situation. Um, yeah. um, uh, shaking it up, no, 
no man doesn't say anything uh, this is again the acting prowess of daniel pollock he's able to communicate a lot with just his eyes yeah, yeah. and his body but certainly his eyes he convinces hando he goes all right up the manhole and onto the roof all right davy you know building that tension between the two which builds throughout the film as yep. well um they get up onto the roof um now little point to note out um again waffle on the podcast shout out guys you did a great job they point out a very significant little moment here they set fire to the squat yeah they they completely finish uh yeah. the life for the boneheads in this part of town they set fire via a photograph this photograph is the last remaining photograph Gabe has of her and her mum. Mother, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That becomes very significant later on. Who supposedly um, died in a car accident. It did, died in a car accident, quote unquote. Yep, yep. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, squats on fire. They run off. Um, then the cops arrive. Tony Lee, Tiger, uh, sorry, you want to say something? Yeah, I was gonna say real quick. Um, the part where Davy actually goes back for the the um, ah, thank the you. window shopping jacket. Yes, yes. And he um, brings it up. She does. She she forgot about it. And yeah, he's the one that yeah. actually stopped and reminds, like, oh, and just went and got it. He went and got it back, basically risking his life at that point to go yeah. back and get it for Gabe as well. So we talked about the love triangle before. Uh, we can basically you get the picture that Davey really likes Gabe. Um, Hando from the party scene, uh, forgot to mention, important to point out now. Uh, he takes her off to have sex with her. Uh, at one point during the party and doggy styles her into us into the swastika her face into the swastika that shows really how he views and thinks of and cares for gabe yeah that's about the level of it yep. risk his risks his life to go back and get the jacket very well pointed out yep. uh both the red the jacket and the swastika. I don't know if that's a little thematic choice by Jeffrey Wright there, but it's a little interesting little attention to detail anyway. Um, now, yeah, basically, yeah, they get away. Cops come along, yeah. Tiger's on the roof, uh, and he basically tells his gang, let's go, uh, we'll get them fucking next time. He does say that in English rather than Vietnamese. Yep. We'll get them fucking next time. Um, so yeah, they won. Bone Vietnamese win. Boneheads lose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, then we come to the next squat with the hippies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, this is interesting. This is interesting. We have the gang moles from the start, not gay, but the other two, uh, quote unquote, punk girls. Yeah. Um, when they show up at the pub, they do mention, uh, is it Rob, I think was this hippie's name, how uh, Rob uh, was bashing one of them at the start. And um, are you going to stomp them out for me, Davy? She says to Davy at the very start, beginning pub, yep. uh, pub scene. These are, these, are, these are the hippies that she referenced there, that she was talking about, yeah? That's why they've gone there, yeah? Uh, logical, you know, uh, sequence of events. 
It's um, a big fucking building too. Like later on, when oof, when all yeah. the shit goes down, it's a huge fucking building. These guys live in. It is a huge. Um, it is a huge building. Um, I'm not sure if this is just how they set it up to create the film uh, for the you know for the universe, the world of the film, or that part of Footscray in Melbourne was a lot of these abandoned warehouses back in the day of 1992, maybe a hmm. little bit of column A, bit of column B, uh, but yeah. it suits, suits the, uh, suits the uh, setting of the film because they need to find an abandoned squat and abandoned. It's, it certainly yeah. is. It's, it's all, it's like airport hangar size. Yeah. Yeah. Air, airport hangar size. Um, now it's a, it's very amusing how they get in the the gang moles. They're trying to make up with the hippies. Sorry about <laughs> eating your food. Uh, go away! You, you smoked my stash. Ah, uh, but we've got money. We can replace. You know, pay for the food we ate. And you know, being squatters, uh, not derogatory, but everyone needs money in that situation. There, yeah. Um, and also, you know, these squatters are shown to be shown to be and already uh, heard to be pieces of shit earlier on in the film. They basically he opens the door, yeah, because it's done through a little peephole, yeah. <laughs> uh, to start with, he sticks his arm out to grab the money, yeah, and then Hando's waiting behind the door, grabs his arm, puts him in a headlock. They go inside. Now, um, here's an interest. This is an interesting little bit, basically, um, because basically it's the end of this. Uh, this is the end of the squat for the hippies. They're not going to be able to stay there. And uh, Hando reinforces that in a very dark but amusing way. Um, uh -huh. Boneheads have squashed up against glass window. Hippies face is squashed. Uh, so the camera's through the glass there from the other well side. Well shot. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he, uh, Hando, and his very cool guy, Steve McQueen fashion here, uh, he says, uh, we're going to be hanging around here for a while. You don't want to stick around, do you? And if I uh, ever see you guys around here again, and then he, you hear the scraping up against the glass, and then an axe handle comes into frame, I'll chop your fucking legs off. <laughs> Uh, it was a nice little cool guy menacing moment. But to point out, uh, okay, Dane Sweetman, the character. I was of, just going to, yep. I yep, was just going to bring yep, that up. So, yep. Your hip, okay. your hip. All yep. right. Now, Dane Sweetman, as I mentioned before, Jeffrey Wright, he hung around uh, lots of unsavory scenes, basically Nazi skinhead scenes for research uh, for a couple of years before filming Romper Stomper. He, of course, found out about Dane Sweetman, who is a notorious back in the day neo-Nazi fuckhead um, who is still talked about by old counterculture punk people to this day that they remember this piece of shit and the really? chaos okay. yeah the chaos the violence the terror terror this guy caused back in melbourne yeah um jeffrey wright was in correspondence with him he was in jail at the time when he was doing his research um he couldn't get a interview with an interview with him because of logistics yeah you know, like prison logistics and also 
the sky was just a hazard in every sense of the word, you know what I mean? So, but he was able to go into correspondence. They wrote letters between each other. Um, that he got a, a copy of the transcript, uh, the trial, the transcript from the trial as well uh, about Sweetman. A lot of uh, the character creation and the writing process of Hando uh, is inspired by the true to life uh character of dane sweetman here dane sweetman uh and basically started his long prison career in jail for axing another neo-nazi in the head or at a party to celebrate adolf hitler's birthday yeah <laughs> yeah um that's why there's the x yeah in this in that yeah. scene there for the x and in the head and didn't he cut off didn't he actually cut off some guy's legs too he used to chop a lot of people's legs off yeah yeah he used to chop so he, people's so legs he, off that was his thing that was his gimmick yeah so he was a heavy so he was a heavy of the heavies mm. and they still talk about this guy huh and they still talk about this guy um I'm, uh, he, uh, what he started up a neo-Nazi group in prison called the Guard. He even got some screws involved as well. He got some uh, prison guards signed up to it as well. He wrote bullshit manifestos just like Mein Kampf. He was against. Get this, bro. This is how screwed up this guy was. Yeah, I mean, he was against foreigners, he was against migrants, he was against um, drug users, he was against doctors. Jesus. <laughs> um, he was basically against, uh, homos it was against homosexuals. Um, now get this, uh, he uh, basically had to be removed into protective custody on a few occasions because some of the most notorious prisoners, notorious uh, criminals in Australia, and we are a country founded <laughs> by criminals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> basically said, we're going to kill you. You are a hazard. You're a piece of shit. Uh, you don't deserve to live, and we're going to kill you. And they used to slip notes under his door on a regular basis. Watch your back. Uh, you're going to die. Um, wow. Um, mainly because, as well, uh, they called him a boy rapist as well, because young prisoners as well, male, he had his way with them on a lot of occasions. This is mm. guy against homosexuals, migrants, doctors, drug users, basically anyone, a woman, anyone he'd, because he was head up for assault against females as well, um, uh, anyone he deemed below him as well. That guy he axed in the head, his mate at the party stabbed him 19 times. They threw him into a back of a boot of a car, uh, a back of a car in the boot, finished the party. And then I think if I remember rightly, threw him off a bridge the next day, which is how they, he, they, he would have got caught because like Hando, um, 
I'm sure he wasn't as eloquent as Hando, but Hando's a movie character, but real life Hando style. Yeah, um, he didn't think the shit through. That body would have, uh, he wouldn't have put bricks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> weighed him down with bricks. He would have uh, risen up and been found in the river the next day by the cops. You know, he was in prison soon after. Yeah, that's the, what um, Hando, uh, that's that's the real life, yeah, Hando. You know what I mean? That's that's yeah. the reality of these type of people, what they're really, really like. Um, um, and why that little that little uh, moment there, that beat in the film, what that's all about, yeah? That's Dane Sweetman. Now, uh, does yeah. Jeffrey Wright, um, does he really acknowledge Dane Sweetman's influence on this movie? Yes, he does. It like, okay. And as does Russell Crowe as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw it, but I didn't get a chance to actually research. It just seemed kind of like it kind of faded away, so I wasn't sure. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's heavy. Yeah, that's well, just well, so. I, I, yeah, I knew the part about I knew the part about the you know the legs cutting off, but I didn't realize. I mean, it makes sense with the axe and why he did what he did. So I'm like, it's fucking genius. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did his research. He definitely did his research. I yeah, know. He pulls no punches. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is not afraid to really uh, back up his message that he wants to convey. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. He yeah, does for sure. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, now they're in the new squat. They've taken over from the hippies. Hippies have gone, but they're still um, now. But they're still bitter. They're still pissed about having lost the fight to the Asians. So they're sitting around and they decide they they want guns. They want lots and lots of guns to go and shoot mm. the Asians. Yeah, the two uh, the uh, the mole girls, the gang moles. Uh, the two girls besides Gabe, um, they say that's enough, too much for us, and they leave, yeah? They leave mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and Spider, who's uh, boyfriend, inverted commas, um, tells them to go, that he just wants to shoot a uh, racist Asian slur, racist Asian slur. <laughs> um, over and over and over. Point being, these pieces of shit have not learned anything at this stage. Yeah, they're just in a new yeah. in a new squat, continuing on, continuing on the same shit way of thinking and living. Um, there's a few moments that have built up the love triangle uh, at this point. Um, where they're doing the uh, Gabe is doing the dishes after making the meal, the hot food for uh, the gang, being the motherly maternal figure, as we've pointed out. Um, and we actually see, uh, but and she, um, we see the relationship forming after the meal, oh, no, but during the meal, Hando proves himself to be more of a piece of shit. Um, everyone else is enjoying the meal, uh, they're appreciative, even almost having a family dinner style conversation around the table um hando's just looking at the pasta and sauce picks up the plate throws it against the wall and calls it wog which is a racist slur for italians and greeks here wogs wog uh uh bloody wog shit or something he calls it yeah yeah um davy uh on the other hand he's helping do the dishes after he's being the nice guy yeah um and they have a little fun moment, a little flirting moment, even Gabe and uh, hmm. Davey. She flicks him in the eye with the uh, the dish brush. Um, 
she's all sorry by accident and then she does it again sort of thing and they start having a tea towel fight yeah um and then she has her first epileptic seizure of the film yeah this is uh going back to the very beginning with malcolm yeah. getting away this uh from the junkie um she hasn't been taking the medicine that she's meant to take to stop the seizures yeah um why well you can read into that as you will sort of thing um um uh spider comes in no yeah spider comes in he starts mocking her you know oh god it's not mad yeah yeah it's not cool not cool uh davy gets up pushes her down um and then they don't know how to deal with an epileptic seizure they wouldn't have seen one before uh well they obviously haven't um and then that cuts to hando an interesting scene here hando uh talking with her saying this is the first time it happened he's not being caring about it he's just wanting to get the facts yeah so he has Mm -hmm. the facts to be able to deal with the situation to maintain uh his status as gang leader as cult figure yeah cult head figure because uh, she's behind a curtain as well talking to hando about this there's that separation there's that divide with davy and her it was fun and flirty you know it was almost intimate yeah or leaning yeah. towards that between this there's that um there is a relationship there but there's that separation which is visually represented by the curtain yeah 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 um now jump uh, getting back to where i was they want guns to shoot the asians gabriel says i know a place if you oh you want to do a burglary because hando because there's you know they're talking about we need money to be able to buy guns we need cash straight up um we should do a burg burglary um and then gabe comes in oh you want to do over a house do you I know a place better than anything you could come up with. Hando gives <laughs> you a little cool guy smile sort of thing. He's impressed at this stage, at the, in this moment with her. And that house, of course, is Malcolm's house, the pedo piece of shit from the start of the film. Yeah? Yeah. Um, real quick sidebar, um, mm-hmm. being from the United States, I mean, it, was, uh, it wasn't lost on me, the fact that this uh, was a violent movie and they don't talk about guns till an hour into the movie. Now, if that movie had been made in the States, I mean, they would have mm-hmm. had guns already. So, yeah, I was supposed to a Jeffrey Wright talk about that. It was pretty funny. So um, I thought that was pretty, that was very indicative. And uh, the other thing he brought up, though, um, with Gabe's seizures and stuff, is the pure hypocrisy of all these Nazis and all their bullshit fucking pure Aryan blood. But these are some of the most flawed motherfuckers you'll ever see. There's mm-hmm. nothing master race about them at all. Except Hando. Fucking... Except huh? Hando. Except Hando. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think, I mean, yeah. Only in terms of representation to show that he's two-dimensional. Yes, he'll go to the gym. Yeah. He's dressed the best out of all of them. He has the most propaganda in his room. Only on that two-dimensional level to contrast with, uh, with the gang slash family unit that's being formed. You know what I mean? So it's that balance mm. between this can happen to anyone and this is the piece of shit that they fall for. Yeah? Yeah. 
but otherwise definitely because spider uh, you know he's a stupid uh asshole hmm. you know he's the comedian but a co real dumb piece of shit comedian cackles yeah. is just an ugly motherfucker you wouldn't let him in your house <laughs> you know what i mean because yeah. he just looks brain dead um and none of them are appealing characters none of them are charismatic none of them are physically appealing no one's hot except hando and i just explained why <laughs> you know what right. i mean or anything like that um they're the type of people back in 1992 victoria uh if you saw you would cross the road yeah mm -hmm not yeah. to basically interact with them definitely um and yeah, a good nothing, point yeah sorry yeah After nothing screen uh, nothing about these guys screams master race to me at all so i just thought it was very <laughs> very hypocritical on their part so absolutely absolutely and done very intentionally by jeffrey Wright, which i thought once again i don't mean yes. to be on sketch johnson but very done very intentionally so step scene by scene uh uh action unit by action unit beat by beat definitely um and a good point about the guns as well yeah yeah <laughs> even in 1992 it would have been another um no one would have been leaving go uh leaving the gang go, oh it's a bit too much for us back <laughs> in america yeah. in 1992 even no good point good point here's a message from the devil here playing around here's a message to the fuck boy you've been keeping Malcolm's house, yeah. Now, Gabe rings the gate, the intercom at the front gate, because this is a palatial mansion, Australian style as well. So there's an intercom at the gate to open the wrought iron fence to let the Rolls Royces, etc., come through. Um, but of course, this pedo piece of crap, as soon as he hears it's Gabe, gate <laughs> swings right, open straight away, and she goes. Hmm. Um, they're having a drink. He's got pretentious opera music playing. You know, there's fancy paintings all over the place. It's palatial mm -hmm. white as well. Very 1992 symbols of being a rich asshole. Um, and <clears throat> now she, um, he tries the pedo thing on her. Are you going to stay? Oh. No, this is only a quick visit. Won't go into details, but you can imagine. Um, she, before he gets too, goes too far, she pours the drink on his head. She goes, oops, oops sorry, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. Now, and then she gets to the gate controls and lets the Hando and the gang in. They all creep downstairs. And then there's one of the funnier moments in the scene, uh, Spider, <laughs> I forget the actor's name, uh, but you know good performer he reveals his uh, comedy chops here um malcolm is in the kitchen preparing another drink hando comes up oh. behind him with the rest of the gang going oi he swings around who the hell are you close up on uh spider there and he goes 
we have come to destroy wreck so we have come to wreck everything and destroy your life god sent us <laughs> yeah oh so good yeah and i guess i think in australia it wasn't like this in the states but i think that was the tagline for the movie in some parts or t-shirts or something like that so we have come to um, wreck everything that's um that's what um jeffrey wright said he used as a tagline for um or maybe it was t-shirts or something like that mm. um he really dug that line so what was the line that uh we were uh we came to wreck everything and ruin your life god sent us oh so yeah, i didn't that know that. that's yeah, cool so that's fantastic another, definitely another soundbite i would hopefully get to use someday in the future so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh yeah, yeah that was a marvelous little moment definitely okay yeah, so yeah the first uh, time i watched that probably were on that part like three four times and i cracked up every time so yeah. i'm like normally under normal circumstances i wouldn't laugh but knowing i know what this guy's gonna get in the end yeah 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 absolutely absolutely and comedy comes from inappropriate inappropriate moments it's a part of the art form of a comedy to create something highly inappropriate you know a tension building sort of thing and you have that little yeah. moment of levity everyone's gonna laugh you know what i mean <laughs> uh, comedy ain't always bright and shiny <laughs> let's just nope. say that yeah um okay so um as you imagine uh malcolm's dealt to he's actually tied around uh the toilet by the hands and the feet he's going nowhere um and they are loading up the rolls royce uh with all of his uh you know fancy uh belongings as uh you know um from sculptures to fancy busts to i think it's a vhs they pick up Yep, I'll just say a VCR and TV. A VCR, so, yeah. And, and what amused me, and it was 1992, but it was even 1992, we know what these things are. Um, one of the skinheads, yeah. I think it was Cackles, picks it up and goes, oh, what's this? And he goes, ah, swack it in there, mate. I mean, it's, it's a VCR. It's 1992. You know what that is. <laughs> this is how dumb pieces of shit. <laughs> say like what's in here or something like that i was like are you fucking idiot i know i know yeah. But yeah again just how dumb these characters are uh but the, this the, the this whole scenario really plays out how dumb they actually are, are but we'll get to yeah. that in a moment um what's important to point out here um hando's doing his whole bit about how the rolls royce is a fine you know vehicle being german you know the nazis had rolls royces if i'm not mistaken um yeah. Yeah, then they turn to the uh, Japanese import to the piece of Jap crap, as they say in the movie. Then they start basically smashing it up. You know, they're all pissed by this stage. They're burglary experts, criminal masterminds. Um, but before that plays itself out, Gabe has a very telling, uh, very telling scene with her dad in the toilet, tied up to the toilet bowl. Um, <clears throat> where... Uh, Hold on. No, no, no. Before then, sorry. Not to jump the they, gun. Yeah. yeah, they ask her how they know this guy. Or they, yes. they kind of go, yeah. They go over, yes. yeah, um, what he or what he does for a living and they then they it was ask a film, her, uh, it was a film producer. 
Uh, yep. Marketing. Yeah, he did like all the pol- or producer he and he did posters. Yeah. yeah, he was at advertising and then he went to producing films, Film. making films as Davy, Hando and Gabe, the love triangle. Yeah, yep. for this moment. And then uh, I think I think Davy or Hando, one of them says, how do you know this guy? Now it was Hando. He's looking at a painting, pretending to understand it. Yeah. And then uh, she goes, oh, even, even quite nonchalantly off the cuff. Oh, oh it's my dad. Hando and David have a turn and look. Go, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, the and then Davy's looking. At, yeah, Davy's looking at some really creepy pictures of her and her dad, like she's in like a schoolgirl outfit, and he's looking creepy. And it, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Well, the thing yeah. I the thing I really liked though that didn't um that wasn't lost on me that uh that Malcolm was tied to a toilet in his own world of shit where he deserved to be. So. Oh, nice. Good visual metaphor. I never picked up on that. That's exactly it. Yeah, so, that is exactly it, definitely. Um, God, I mean, I mean, you had a feeling like the first time you watched it that that was the case, but once she says it, you're just, my stomach just fucking turned. I was like, yeah, fuck this guy. Absolutely. Oh, so, I, the, no, no, all good. We had to touch on that first, though, because then she goes into the toilet uh, she basically confronts him. Um, was, she, he says, why are you doing this to me? You deserve it. Uh, <laughs> now, he says, but I, I loved you. Uh, uh, that wasn't love. She says, why couldn't, she, why couldn't you love mum? Um, is, that, is that what really happened? I'm paraphrasing. Um, did she really die in an accident? Is mm-hmm. that why she killed herself? Uh, um, basically really making, without stating it directly, that Gabe's mum killed herself because of the incestuous relationship between her husband and her daughter. Yeah? Wow. Um, what did you think, though? It has to be said because it's stated in the film. Um, he said, but you always started it. I just thought he's a, he's a textbook fucking sociopath. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's never his fault. It's his way of justifying. It's his way of putting the blame on her. And I'm, I'm the normal one. And just typical, typical, horrible sociopathic behavior. Child abuser. It's child abuse 101 yeah. as well. Who knows how young this started from that uh, photo we used to see her as a young yeah. schoolgirl as well, younger than she is in the film, quite significantly so. She's been manipulated into this from a very young age, you know, you know what I mean? To the point yeah. where she believes... Sorry, one moment, water. To the point that she believes that is... Uh, that is fatherly love for her, yeah? That what yeah. That is what represents love in the family unit. That is how she gets love from the father. So even if it has it suggested that she may have started it, that is because she's been manipulated into that because that's the only love she knows. You know I mean? That's classic child abuse. I mean, it's really fucked. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I know I've said it like 12 times, but it still makes my fucking stomach turn. It's just like... It's hard to talk about. I, mean, I get, I get yeah, even thinking, yeah. let alone talking about it. She 
you think uh, she's going to get a revenge in the next beat when she picks up, picks up the Buddhist statue here, which is obviously going to could do some damage to someone's skull, which you think yeah. is about to happen because she raises it above her head, but she lands it in the bowl and, and then says to, uh, to, says to him, next time I'll aim it at your skull. Yeah. yeah. In, in very bonehead fashion as well, the way she delivered that line. <laughs> <laughs> delivered, yep. Yeah. 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 Acclimating to her new surroundings. Exactly. Exactly. She's found that she's found a substitute for paternal love somewhere else. As messed up as yeah. that what is, as that is, that's yep. just what's happening. Yeah. And that's what happens as well. Okay. Okay. And Davey rushes in because he's heard the smash of the toilet bowl, drags. Uh, she drags him out to the, uh, the his bedroom. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of, you know, uh, playing around. She does the piano. She's, it's a song about her cats. Um, she says that Hando doesn't really care for her. Um, but she says um, he's cute, but you're cute sort of thing, basically suggesting, um, yeah, hand, I mean, Hando is hot, but he doesn't give a shit about me. You're cute too, and you're a nice guy. Give us a kiss. And they kiss. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, that's what happens in that scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Malcolm is back in the toilet. Um, he has a way out because the Buddha, the Buddha statue smashed the bowl. It's basically created a sharp edge for the cloth material that they tied him up with. You know, hogtied. There was no way out of it until that sharp edge occurred where he could yeah. up against it um, and uh, cut the cloth material with the edge of the toilet bowl, the smashed toilet bowl. He gets out. Um, Bubs has been playing with guns. Uh uh, his display guns, Ma Malcolm's display guns just before then as well, yeah. You see a scene with yeah. Bubs playing with guns. That becomes very significant later on. It's a bit of foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm has gone into the kitchen to get an actual gun. I'm not sure what type of gun that was. America, I defer to you. Do you know? <laughs> I don't. Maybe a Colt 45. Yeah, I don't know much about that okay. kind of stuff. Okay. But yeah, I mean, 9mm Colt 45. Something it's a fault, I think. The other gay points out the other guns, the uh, the firing clips been filed down, the barrels have been filled in, they're, they're display guns. Um, right. when he when he puts in the clip, you go, okay, that's not a that's not a display gun, it's hidden in cereal as well. This is for <laughs> intruders set up. Um and uh he goes into the bedroom his bedroom where Gabe and Davy are, maybe having another kiss, who knows? Um Davey whacks him with a, I think it's a badminton racket, knocks yeah. him to the floor, they run out, he starts into the hallway, he starts firing. Um, they come down into the garage where Hando is driving the car pissed um, like a like a bull in a Spanish conquistador bullfight because mm -hmm. Spiders has, has his jacket. The car's being destroyed. Jap crap has been um, spray painted on it. They've forgotten about their mission for the about the burglary entirely at this stage. Um, and then Malcolm comes in and starts firing. Hando runs it well. Um, bowls them over um, and they all get in the, in the car uh, the Japanese import and drive off uh, burglary failed failed mission yeah I had a chuckle I was thinking I was thinking of Boondock Saints when he was uh, he was tied up to that toy I'm like why don't you just pick it up off the floor like they did in that movie say that again you know, uh, you've seen Boondock Saints I assume 
Yeah. Yeah, the part where uh, they uh, they they uh, handcuff the one kid to the toilet and he just rips it out of the floor. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's one. I mean, I don't like to look at films too. Uh, oh, why don't you just do this? You should have done that because it can't kind of take away from the enjoyment of the movie. But also, when Malcolm runs out, when he runs into his bedroom, with why didn't Davy just start punching him? Because he whacked him with the racket, he had fallen over. When they had um, bowled him over, there was plenty of times, plenty of yeah. points to take care of Malcolm. But yeah. it would have taken away from. Good, uh, good point. Point this out, Jeffrey Wright. He likes to uh, show the show the lives of ordinary people in his films, but, mm-hmm. but he also feels and believes uh, that no one. There's no such thing as an ordinary person. If you look deep enough into the life of anybody, great drama is there and a story can be told. He always puts in a classical traje- trajectory into his narratives, yeah? And mm-hmm. when Malcolm is running out, firing the gun, the opera music builds, it's at a higher volume at this point, you know what I mean? It's uh, almost like a... Um, a classical narrative, almost a theatrical moment here for the film. You know what I mean? So um, it's just to show off his flair in this point as well. And to show that the characters lead, ordinary characters can lead dramatic lives. And this is a highly dramatic moment. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Um, but the but point being, the burglary failed. They're complete idiots. And they've shown it once more. <laughs> in dramatic detail. Um, uh, before we get there, is there anything else we need to point out? Uh, so they've failed. They go back to the squat. Hando's pissed off. He's sitting on the couch, you know, knee tapping. He's, he's worked up. Um, Gabe's doing her hair. She's humming a little tune. He tells her to shut up. Stop doing that to your hair. You look ridiculous and keep the noise down. Um, Gabe, I think, after dealing with her dad in such a fashion, confronting him in the toilet, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. she's got a bit more confidence and courage about her at this point, certainly towards uh, dominant male figures. She continues to hum and play with the hair. Hando says, shut the fuck up. Um, and then she basically goes off, goes off at him, yeah, and puts yep. him in his and tells him the truth of what he is. You are useless. You can't look after yourself. Why didn't you get just get the stuff and go? You can't do anything right. Hando kicks her out. Yeah, calls yeah calls him a loser, and that's what set him off. Oh, the losers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. And people like uh, we've all met. Not Hando to that degree, but we've all met people who aspire to be Hando-esque. And if you call them a loser, if you get to the ego, that was a real bullet to the ego then, yeah? Shot to the ego. Yeah, I was the one that set him off. I was like, yes! Yeah, because he hits her. He just whacks her full on the face at that point as well, uh, which which is the first point of physical violence he actually demonstrates towards her, as seen in the film. Uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> she goes off. Uh, Davy chases after. Yeah, Davy chases after. Bubs um, chases after Davy, calling him gutless, calling him weak. You're leaving us for her. Davy turns around and slaps Bubs. 
goes um, and then gets up to Gabe. Can I come with you? No. Gabe says, there's something I have to do. You've got a pen and paper, writes down the address to his grandmother's house. If you ever need me, I'll be there. Um, Hando has said, where the fuck are you going? And he says, I'm going home. Yeah. Mm. So Davey at this point has had enough as well. Yeah. Um, the family unit is falling apart. The family yeah. unit of the gang is falling apart. All the women are gone. Yeah. Okay. So, da, 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 da. ah, now it's interesting though what Gabe has gone off to do. She goes and mm-hmm. dobs them into the police. What did you reckon about this point, this moment? I don't know. Um, I mean, it makes sense. It just seemed uh, a little sloppy. But I mean, I mean, it makes you know, it makes sense in the in the arc of the story. And she's done, mm. and you know, mm. now she's got some confidence, and she's got a a man that she thinks is not going to treat her bad. And she's like, "Well, fuck these guys. Here's the ultimate revenge." And yeah, yeah, I don't want you guys in my life anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a revenge moment, definitely. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Actually, it's a little bit of a character trait which reveals itself again near right near the end of the film that uh, that want for revenge where she enacts revenge she can be vengeful i guess yeah. but she has good reason though she has good reason um now davy has gone off to basically stay at his grandmother's house who is hmm. as old school german as can be <laughs> yeah for sure with her little dachshunds in the, in the house so yeah, she speaks German as a first language as well. And Davy speaks fluent German as well. Um, and the house is very 1950s, a German slash Australian. It is quaint and it is twee. He's in a little sleep out, a little, um, I don't know yeah. what you call granny cottage. I don't know what you call them in America, but it's made for um, a young girl, not a grown bonehead man, <laughs> basically. <laughs> he's got definitely got to swallow his pride but the place to stay so yeah um gabe after she after she's dubbed oh actually before gabe arrives i'm not sure of the sequence there but we can't leave out uh what happens to young bubs oh yeah yeah so when, okay yeah so we forgot actually when the cops show up in general yeah yeah so uh, gabe's yeah. dubbed them in the consequences of that dobbing in is tragic, yeah. is tragic, yeah. Um, Hando, uh, after the next morning, whatever, Gabe's left, Davey's left, Hando goes to turn on the, uh, the water, water tap to make some coffee. It's gone. Bubs informs him that it was cut off yesterday. Hando's calculating. He's very calculative, whatever you say about him. You know, he is stupid, but, you know, he's, he calculates in his head. He's cold and calculating. Um, yeah, and it goes Russell Crowe did a great to, job in this uh, in this scene, saying a lot without saying a word. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in the eyes, definitely. Um, he says to Bubs, "Does anyone know we're here?" Bubs goes, "No." Is there an outside tap? I don't know. He puts his he puts his hand a very fatherly style around him. Goes, "You're meant to be, aren't you? Meant to be my scout, sort of thing." In that moment, you see why Bubs is part of the gang, because that's his uh-huh. dad, Hando. Whatever happened to his actual dad, who knows? That's his dad, Hando. And um, Hando's outside looking for the outdoor tap. 
turns it on, disgusted look in his face. Obviously, there's brown shit water <laughs> coming through. He's waiting <laughs> for it to run out. Yeah. Then he sees the cop car. Yeah. Cop car hasn't seen him yet. Runs back in. Cops are here. Cops comes uh, zooming into uh, the abandoned warehouse. Great little camera work where from the cops to the car point of view, cop car point mm-hmm. of view, going fast, oil music blaring. <laughs> um, and then once and they scoot, they uh, park. Yep, break skidding outside the office is where the office area is basically where they're all squatting. Um, and then Bubs comes out holding the gun that he kept from the burglary scene, the display gun that yep. he kept from the burglary scene. Um, and um, yeah, uh, the cops pretty much shoot him. I think they give right him the one. Head. One warning and then shoot him straight in the head. Bubs is dead. Yeah. Heavy moment. Definitely a heavy moment. Um, The version you saw, because there's some edits, some censoring of different versions uh, based on the scene, around the scene. Did you see the gunshot wound in the center of the head? Yep. Yes. Same that I did. Same yeah. that I did as well. Um, in England, uh, waffle on again. The version they saw, um, they were talking about how that's cut out of some versions. But that's what, yeah. In the original cut, however you see it, that's what happens yeah. to Bubs. Yeah. Um, and then uh, they go in and they grab the rest of the boneheads. Uh, I, there is a funny little moment by Spider again, where they <laughs> the cops grab him. I think he about punches. He punches or pushes a female cop. The male cops grab his arms and he goes, oh, I surrender. And she goes, too late. Kicks him in the nuts. <laughs> Rochambeau. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I laughed so hard both times I saw that. I was like, that is awesome. Because you're funny, but you fucking deserve it. <laughs> yeah. As well. Absolutely. All right. So that's, that happens. And that's that's the end of the gang. It's done and dusted there. Yep. Game yeah. Over. That's, it, that's it. I mean... Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and yeah, and that's uh, that's really. I mean, it really shows for it shows later on what this way of living, this way of thinking, where it leads you. And that was Jeffrey Wright's overall intent of this movie, purpose for this film, the message overall. This is the first time that it's really conveyed. It's conveyed uh-huh. again wholeheartedly significantly dramatically at the end of the film but this is the first time yeah that he really puts that across okay so you're left with the love triangle of davy gabe and hando because hando's run off yeah hando's run off uh what a father figure yeah go down with the ship captain okay um now uh gabe and davy they meet up. There's a bit of a reconciliation as well. He talks about his father's matchbox collection, but that's just really, you know, just playing around, playing footsies until they get to the sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, with this sex scene, now it's very, what I want to point out here, um, we saw the sex scene between uh, Hando and Gabe. This is doggy style into the swastika says it all this scene is intimate it is loving it is shared position it is switching positions one person on top then the other person on top no one's dominant yeah um Mm -hmm. and then jen um she has said gabe has said 
Um, she's I love you to uh, Hando um, when they first start having sex, and she says it to someone else as well. I can't remember, but she just says it as uh, as a behavior pattern. She's looking yes. for love because of this fucked up situation with Malcolm, the father, her actual dad. Yeah, she is yeah. looking for that love. She genuinely cutely meekly says to Davy, I love you at the end of the sex scene. He says mm. it to her and there's genuine compassion and emotion there. It's genuine. It's authentic. Yeah. That's the real, that's showing that contrast there. Um, and if you right, really wanted to highlight this scene as well, to show that love, to show that intimacy, uh, because with, um, when you are in a world of hate, uh, love is what will overcome. Yeah. As cliched mm -hmm. as it sounds, and he says, he said himself, it's cliched, but that's really what it is. And it is the truth. This is what, can, this is what can dismantle hate is love. And he really wanted to show that in this sex scene, showing the emotion between Hando and Gabe. Yeah. No, sorry. What am I talking? Davy and Davey. Gabe. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, um, and also as well, just to show Jeffrey Wright as the good director as he was, and Davey, Daniel Pollock, rest in peace. Uh, the, good, the good dudes that they were, uh, it was highly methodical. It was highly technical. Uh, Dave, Daniel Pollock wrapped her in a sheet after each take as well to cover her up, close set. You know what I mean? This wasn't a male gazy exploitative, you know, yes. filming situation whatsoever. Um and uh, Jacqueline McKenzie said there was even a very funny moment where she forgot to turn. Uh, she turned the wrong way at one point and they both fell off the bed laughing in hysterics. Yeah, <laughs> at one point. Um, and why I say, uh, I don't think we um, really stated it uh, completely before we uh, said before that Daniel Pollock passed away because he was addicted to heroin throughout the filming of this scene. Uh, throughout this yeah. movie yeah um and this was during filming as well and if you look closely at his eyes in a film a few parts few scenes he's not there he's not with it and i think during the party scene i don't know if he actually was wasted like legitimately actually wasted on heroin at that point when he's lying on the stairs yeah yeah. Um, and then Hando puts him on the ground, gives him a pillow and a blanket. And then he says, you silly bugger. I don't know how real that moment was, but when you watch it and you know what happened to Daniel Pollock, oh. that moment is resonates. It's heavy. Yeah. 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 Cause and, didn't he, uh, didn't he get hit by a train? Yeah. Uh, he basically walked onto the tracks and arms out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. Because uh, he was he was at his wit's end. He was at there was yeah. Um, and they all Russell Crowe and uh, Jeffrey Wright have spoken about the talent that he had as well. That uh, he could have been up there with uh, you know Hugh Jackman and that sort of thing in terms of and Crowe in terms of success where he could have gone for the talent that he had as well. They said he was an exceptional talent. And if you think about it. Russell Crowe and Gabe, they use a lot of their dialogue to convey, convey their character. Davey doesn't speak much in this film. 
who's the quieter, more reticent character, but he yep. says vo volumes with his body and his eyes and his presence. And yeah, he was really, really good. It is a tragedy yeah. what happened to him. Um, okay, so they have the sex scene. Next morning in bed, sun's up, lovely, lovely. Then the dogs start barking. We're going back to the very first moment where the dogs are barking under the, you know, the understation with the gang and yep. the Vietnamese. The dogs return here. Something bad is on its way. Uh, lo and behold, Hando is standing in their goddamn room looking down at them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got. I really like the continuity of the dogs barking in both of those scenes when when he shows up. Very subtle, but very very poignant. Yeah, the great attention to detail, definitely. German dogs barking as well, just to add to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, grandmother turns up uh, as well. What is happening? Why are my lovely <laughs> dogs? Why are they barking so? Uh, a little bit of a German exchange there. It's just a cat. It's just a cat. She goes away. Um, uh, but Hando does convey uh, the fact that Spud is dead. And he does question them both, particularly Gabe, because he's kind of just glaring at her while Gabe is looking up at him, terrified, as you would be. How did they know we were there? DBX is the alibi, gives the alibi. She was with me the whole time since she left the squat, even though Davey knows that wasn't the truth, that that wasn't the case. But I guess just in that moment, he wouldn't think that she would do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what are we, um, Hando says, we've got to stick together, past is past. Davey falls into line. What are we going to do? I got a plan, mate. Cut to next scene. Um, and I'm not sure, uh, Middle Eastern Indian, um, yeah. want of a better uh, word, foreigner is being strangled to death by Hando in a 7-Eleven, choked to death, and actually he kills him. Yeah. 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 Great cut. Like you, yeah, it was, mm. and I was really impressed with what they did here. Um, cause Russell, um, Hando really actually looks defeated this whole rest of the movie. Yeah, like he's definitely a, lost that 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 pep in his step, and it was a. Uh, this is where Russell Crowe really really shined here, um, you know, with, with his mannerisms and his gestures and his expression. He just absolutely. he looks like a defeated man, but he but at the same time he looks defeated, but he's acting like he won't admit he's defeated. If that makes sense, a hundred percent, perfectly put, perfectly put. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing his best to control this uh, strength and dominance. Um, so he's got that wild, violent look in his eyes still, you know, I'm still a man of action, but he's hunched over just a little. He's not standing up straight as he was. Uh, he's yeah. a little shaky as well. You know what I mean? His composure's not all there. Definitely very well pointed out. Um, and so, yeah, they uh, fill up the car at the 7-Eleven with junk food. Let's drive, uh, we'll drive all night and dump this piece of crap in Adelaide, which is roughly about three, four hours drive from where they are in Melbourne, yeah? Uh, okay. Um, and then I think they're listening to the radio as well at loud volume, the news, try and get the police reports sort of thing. It's just a tense, horrible scene in that car when they're driving yeah. at night. You see the, a bit of the barrenness of the, uh, the Australian landscape because once you leave the city, you're in no, no, uh, no man's land, you know, especially along that stretch of road. No other cars are going to be around you by yourself. 
Um, and then Gabe has another seizure in the back of the car, yep. which is an important beat there. Um, and then uh, basically daylight comes uh, and they come to a lookout spot at a beach. And uh, does she say that she's never been to the beach before? She hadn't been to the beach in years. In years, that's right. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Can we stay a while? Hando says uh, just for a wee bit, just not for long. She goes off. She's playing in the water, finding crabs, just almost yeah. being a young kid at this point. Yeah. And um, which was uh which is very unhandle like because normally you'd be like, Nora going to the fucking beach. You're not telling me what to do. He actually like submitted some power to her, which she when she yeah. asked for the beach, which yeah. you know, is yeah. it was another telltale sign of, you know, mm. he's losing it. I hear you. I hear you. Absolutely. They're, but, and they're all exhausted at this point as well, because that's a yeah. long drive at night after that situation as well. And it's quite isolated along there as well. Um, you, uh, it's justified that they felt they were by themselves. They were away from the danger even for just a moment. But I do hear what you're saying. Um, now, um, dumb question. So I know it's super isolated and they, they brought spare gas. Is that like a normal thing? People usually bring gas in case they run out of gas that far? Or, or is that yeah. just... Yeah. Okay. If you're traveling those distances in Australia, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, for uh, listeners, viewers aren't too familiar with the geography, to get from the east... Uh, America's pretty big as well. So, you know, yeah. it's kind of equidistant. Um, to get to the east coast to the west coast, to say from where I'm at, Brisbane in southeast Queensland, the state, uh, to get to Perth of Western Australia, the capital of Western Australia, the state, takes six days. Constant wow. driving. Yeah. Well, you and you have to, um, can you drive, you, I mean, you drive along the coast though, right? You don't. Drive through the heart of Australia, right? Oh, no, that's driving straight through the middle. To get to around the coast, around the edges, it's another yeah. uh, take. Would it be longer? I'm not sure. You can do either way. You can do either way. Yeah. Okay. So from Melbourne to Adelaide, is it? Hmm, actually, I'm, I would have to look this up. It might even be much longer than three to four hours, actually. You might be talking two to three, even a couple of days to get there actually would make more sense if they've been driving all night and they're not at Adelaide, they're at the beach. Yeah. Okay. So you look at a two to three days even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but with, the, with uh, the interstate, I mean, you can get across the United States in two days pretty easy. I mean, it'd be a push. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Nah, nah, not. I've not, done nah. it, but yeah. 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 So from Victoria where Melbourne's at to Adelaide, the neighboring state in the South there, it's about two to three days, I'd say. Yeah, I might be wrong. Okay. Anyway, I'm not a geography expert anyway. Um, they're not there from driving all night. It takes longer than that anyway, as the film shows. All right, they're at the beach. Um, and then this, this is where Hando tries to, you know, tries to flex his dominance over Davy again um, and says to her, says to him, we've got to get rid of her. She's sick tries to go in with the uh, empathetic approach, but then the true hando comes out. She's trouble. Uh, she's going to weigh us down, etc. We'll give her some money. It's only fair. 200 bucks, leave her in the middle of nowhere. 200 bucks, even in 1992, wouldn't do squat. <laughs> um, basically wants to abandon her. Um, and then he says something which 
as the film kind of suggests when you're looking at it, that he may have gotten into Davy's mind because he's not saying anything at this stage. He's trying to walk off. Or he's saying, I'm with her, I'm with her, until he says to him, you don't want her to get in trouble for me killing the guy in the 7-Eleven from last night. That gives him pause. That does give Davy pause because he wants to protect her no matter what. Right, yep. Ga Gabe is up above. She's trying to show um, Davy the little crab she found. They're underneath in a kind of sand tunnel. She's up on a rock above. They can't see each other, but she can hear. She comes in at the end of the, of the conversation, you know, when that happens. She hears that they both want to get rid of her. Yeah. That was a well done um, shot too when they panned up to her yes, sitting above yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she runs back up to the car on the lookout spot, up the steps to the car. She grabs the jerry can, the can of petrol, as you pointed out there, and sets fire to the car. We were talking mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. vengeful nature. Um, you know, she's had a bad time with men in the past. She's going to act out. Fair enough. She certainly does here. And she sets the car on fire. Didn't really think it through. How are you going to get out there? But hey, Jeffrey Wright, he likes his classical trajectory. This is a moment of high drama in the film. Yeah, building up to the grand crescendo, which we're almost there. Um, and then Hando from down below sees the smoke. What's that? It's the fucking car. Boom, they both bolt straight up. They start shouting at each other, what are you doing? She says, you know, screw you, F you. Um, I am the one that called the cops. In a moment of high emotion, she lets it out. Hando goes straight for her. <laughs> yes. Choking her. David try Davy tries to pull her off. He's got his hands around Hando's face while Gabe's down on the ground with Hando choking her. It's a nice little love triangle tableau there. It's a really good little image. Um, she manages to get away, runs down to the beach. Hando chases after her, drags her. I think she runs into the water. Hando's yep. going, I'm going to kill you, bitch. I'm going to kill you. Grabs hold of her and starts dunking her under. And, you know, he wants to kill her. There's no second guessing this. He wants to yeah. kill her. Uh, and Davy runs in after he wants to protect her it's all very set up here all the work's being done um, they, she manages to get away because uh, Davy and Hando are fighting in the water Hando gets Davy off him back onto the beach starts choking her yeah basically like if Davy doesn't do something right now that's it for Gabe yeah. He starts, Davy starts crying, yeah, because Davy and Hando, they have been close. He's, he's, he called him my best mate throughout the film, you know what I mean? Yeah. And Hando, Davy was the only one who could get to Hando. And Davy is the only one Hando really gave any shits about any human being in this film. Those tears are real. But he pulls out the knife of cheap alloy steel from Magoo, yep. from the party that he bought for 50 bucks, probably still owes Hando the 20. From the end of the bar, from the end of the war. Yep, from the end of the war, uh, and runs up, stabs him in the neck. Pakong. Boom. <laughs> and yeah. um, and uh, oh, yeah. The Japanese tourists are filming and watching the whole thing. So that's, yeah, that's the final bit, and that's a very interesting moment. Um,
you do see Hando stand up and he's you know and he's shaking with the blood spurting out as well. It's straight in yeah. the uh, that vein there, one of the main veins. Forget what it's called, but you know it's over. You know it's right. it's closed. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and he looks at Davy. He does give him that. What? How could you? We brothers look, but then staggers off on the ground. Um, Davy goes to Gabe, picks her up, protects, puts her onto onto the chest, protects her. She um, she says to him one word: stay. Don't leave me like all the other male figures in my life. Yeah, um, actually love me properly. <laughs> and stay yeah very powerful then the japanese tourists arrive from the cliff above with gabe and hando hugging each other and sorry gabe and davy hugging each other and hando bleeding out on the beach japanese tourists busload comes out all with cameras and the big shoulder mounted video cameras it is 1992 there's no cell phones at that point um the mobile phones and um they look down and they all start taking the photos they start rolling you know recording uh the footage um and they, um davy looks up then there's a close-up of a couple in frame is a couple of japanese ladies paraphrasing are they okay i'm not sure <laughs> back back to the beach um and the final shot is davy's Sorry, Hando's, Hando's point of view. So it's skewed, turned up on its side here yeah, as his head is yep. laying against the beach, seeing the tide come in. Ba-bomb, ba-bomb, ba-bomb. Theme music comes in and plays, credits roll. Yeah. Heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we need to touch on their final beat, their final moment of the Japanese tourists, because uh, that has been a moment, uh, that is a scene of discussion, of contention even, of why, uh, Jeffrey Wright was called racist for putting the Japanese tourists in that scene there at the end. What do you reckon? Um, I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. I haven't thought about that too much. Um, I don't know if he's just trying to show that, I mean, empathy in general. I don't think it was really directed towards any kind of particular race of people. But I mean, I just think it's a natural general reaction for any person from any skin color that's like, are they okay? Well, they could be. It's not my fucking problem. What do I care? Yes. I'm I'm on some vacation. Yes, he did. You know, say it's like that. watching a car accident. Everyone stops and, you know, turkey necks, they drive by. Mm-hmm. Everyone likes watching a car wreck. Yeah, that's pretty much what he did say. Uh, for, for one part, and the first part, and the second part, it's twofold, his reasoning, uh, was that um, he said, yes, you have dickhead neo Nazis. Uh, who've come to their ultimate conclusion living that way of life. Um, and then you have people who live a much better way of life through better thinking, better planning, uh, just being better people. Um, and I'm talking uh, Japanese people over Australian white people in total. He is an Australian white dude, Jeffrey White. Um, yeah. that they, that's why they have gone further 
uh, in the global society than Australian white people in 1992. That's why I put them up on a cliff looking down as well. So hmm. what he's saying kinda is it might be racist, but it's racist towards these white dickheads, not the Japanese as people read it to be. He is a heavy handed dude, Jeffrey Wright at times. So this was, can be seen as a heavy handed moment. Depends on how you read it, could be just, that's just, this is just reality playing itself out. Anyone would take a photo. Anyone would be curious. Yeah. But also yeah. he was also saying, oh, I just really hate Nazis. And I think the Japanese tourists are better than Nazis. I really want to show how much a piece of shit the Nazis are by having them up on the cliff looking down at them. Yeah, that's, think, a, that's, that's a really good point. Just, yeah. After you. Yeah, I mean, nothing. I mean, if I've learned anything about Jeffrey Wright from this movie is nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by accident. No, nothing happens by accident. Yeah, so I mean, that's a really good way of putting it. I had, you know, I hadn't thought about it, so. Yeah, I think by that point in the movie, I was just so emotionally drained. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> hey. <laughs> in a good way. This, no. yeah. In a good way. In a good I mean, way. Like, um, like you said, the movie's, there's, it's 30 years old. And I mean, if, if you think about it, it's, we're two guys that live on opposite sides of the world talking about this movie 30 years later. So yeah. he did something right. Yeah, and it's both relevant in both our countries. Yeah, back then and to this day, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so point being, if you think this film promotes this sort of behavior or racism in any way, shape or form, you are looking at it very incorrectly. You are wrong. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I mean, their, their time of, of dominance is very short in movie. And the one person, the one guy, the whole group that was halfway decent person is the only one that survived and didn't go to jail. Everyone's, I mean, unless mm -hmm. the, you think dying young and going to jail young is horrifying, well, that's that's yeah. something more about you than the picture than the movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's shown how it, this can happen to anyone as well. You know what I mean? Through the yeah. uh, breaking down of the family unit, how people need that family unit as well. Anyone can end up in this situation as well. Um, as well as this line of thinking, this way of living, it leads to this ultimate conclusion as well. So what he's saying really is forget gangs, whatever it may be, look at yourselves, look at um, the flowers in your own backyard, whether you be a father, uh, you be a daughter, you be uh, whatever sort of thing. Um, and basically help yourself to help your own life out. Don't go down these lines because it can happen to anyone. Yeah. 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 That's what that's not, you know, think, the ultimate message is after you. And obviously, you know, the, the Nazism and everything is a horrible thing. Um, but if we don't have these discussions, you know, like this movie, um, that's why, I mean, I, I'm very guilty of this myself. I mean, I don't, you know, sometimes you think the shove shouldn't be taught to kids and, you know, but, um, he brought up a very good point. You know, it was, it was wider, wider released in Australia, very well censored in France and Britain, but highly recommended in Germany because the uh, Germans teach. Yes, this is part mm -hmm. of our history. It's a shitty mm -hmm. part of our history. But if we don't teach us history, okay. we're going to fucking repeat it. You know, so okay. we're not glorifying it, but we still need to talk about it. That's awesome. You know? Okay. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that as well. That's awesome, actually. Um, 
white power Russian music labels don't adopt yeah. it and make it your own. You know what I mean? That's that's yeah. that's a wrong reading of it, absolutely. But this is art and it's going to be interpreted in different ways, though. That's the danger of art, though, as well. Um well, the danger is not the right word. That's just the nature of art, though, as well. But that's why we have these type of discussions, though, as well. Uh, right. to, yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, and to bring it back to the United States, I mean, it's very similar um, of talking about slavery. It's a really shitty part of time of our history. Um, but if we stop, you know, I don't believe we should celebrate. We should have statues and any of that shit. But we still have to talk about it. It's a really shitty yeah. thing in our history. Yeah. that we need to address and it's um obviously that mentality is still prevalent um mm-hmm. but not talking about it it's not going to make it any better absolutely and i've been very absolutely. guilty of that i mean i say tear all these fucking statues down i don't want schools named after confederate assholes uh-huh. but uh-huh. we still need to talk about it so. absolutely absolutely and that's why rob stomper is an important australian film that australians need to see as well uh because the values conveyed by the gang in this film are some of the values conveyed in middle class culture uh yeah in australia as well uh the gangs just go around and shout it out whilst the middle class culture will say it around uh, dinner tables at night or to themselves quietly in the pub in the corner that sort of thing or maybe not so quietly depending on how they're pissed they are but it um uh, it horrible values uh spread throughout to this day so it is an important australian film in that way um because it's not just them it's also us as well it's something we yeah. need to be aware of yeah 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 so that's why this film is still important to this day and worth talking about 30, near 30 years later. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah. I mean, I hate that we have to have the conversation, but I mean, it's the same thing here. Yeah. I mean, the middle class thinks that the lower class is beneath them. And, but at the same time, we're all being shit yeah. on by the same yeah. upper class. Yeah. 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 Man. There you go. There you go. There you go. You know, that's a, a lot of, a lot of people say, well, it's not my problem. So what the fuck do I care? Yeah. Okay, you know, let's just yeah. after you. Sorry. Oh, yeah. oh, go ahead. Okay, um, I'll just run through some. Uh, is there anything else you want to say though? Now that we've done the um, plot of this, the movie. Really, I think um, the one point I forgot to bring up is um, obviously, as we know, we've talked about that we don't condone this whatsoever. It's just uh, the hypocrisy of uh, Nazi skinheads in general is that they literally. Um, stole their culture from the people they're fighting against and i just i don't get it you know it's just i i hate hypocrisy it's the it's the worst thing it's almost as bad as ignorance so but i think we addressed it earlier so i'm not gonna keep hammering no 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 100 100 i also need to i will mention what uh it was like back in the day here as well in new zealand and australia uh let's go to 1992 i never grew up in australia so i can't necessarily speak for australia but i grew up i spent 30 years in New Zealand yeah uh, so I was there in 1992 I was 15 years old I was an impressionable young teenager um, in Christchurch New Zealand in terms of gangs you had the 
the neo-Nazis, who we just knew as skinheads because we weren't hip, we weren't privy to Jamaican rude boy culture, history, uh, English working class history, etc. Uh, well, I wasn't um, because of the background I came from and school was not my focus. I was uh, a street urchin, you know what I mean? I wasn't going to school, I was running around the streets, uh, causing hmm. my own low-key brand of terror and just getting wasted a lot. Um, and so I ran into a lot of skinheads and I ran into a lot of what we called homies. So basically it was the whites versus the Pacific Islanders, the Marys, the Pacific Islanders. Uh, yeah, versus uh, the neo-Nazi whites, yeah. Uh, punk wasn't even a thing. It was pretty much just neo-Nazi whites, yeah, skinheads. There was a lot of them wow. in New Zealand at the time, big, big, organized inverted comma gangs. Now I was a goth talking Robert Smith, the cure, goth, yeah? Um, uh, in terms of counterculture, yeah, you had the homies, the, what we called the skinheads. We had, uh, I guess, the indie kids, you know, the Sonic Youth fans, that's as close as punk to it got, yeah? Um, you had the goths, which I was a part of, uh, the Robert Smith side of things. So, I mean, I was a small kid. I was pretty passive as well. There's not much that I could have done in terms of retaliation or defending myself. And I was very much, I was into poetry and the cure. Yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, and there was also metal heads as well, a big Metallica, Slayer, uh, thrash metal culture there as well. Um, goth. Hammers, as you know, I'm over there. Uh, the goths and the hammers being the ones that wore, who were white and wore black, fraternized with each other, kind of, kind of became the same thing, same group, yeah. Um, all of the, I'm talking purely in gang terms or individual terms here. This is groupthink mentality uh, on a gang scale. The homies, were against uh, the skins, of course, but um, the skins infiltrated metal culture and therefore goth culture. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, as these fuckers, as neo Nazis, has unfortunately infiltrated a lot of countercultures, be it punk, be it black metal, be it goth even um you know what i mean um, yeah their ugly fucking stain has spread unfortunately it does spread at times until it's beaten off like good people like commander hmm. ryan no lou podcast yep uh yep um commander we sorry commander we um um, so basically, I uh, when I was around that age, you know, the 15 to 20 mark, I ran across skinheads and I came across them. Yeah, certainly I was never party to their politics. I was never involved in their activities whatsoever. Um, uh, but uh, there was, um, but I had friends uh, like you did, uh, if mm -hmm. I may say, who had uh, opinions that I did not disagree with, uh, but young and frail and needed to protect myself. I didn't speak up about them as much as I should have, as much as 44 year old Gene certainly would, um, hmm. because uh, being a small town as well, I needed a gang, I needed a family to hang out with, to protect myself yep. through. Yeah, if that makes sense, yeah? Oh. Yeah. 
Yep. Um, but like yourself there, I discovered Public Enemy, Fear of a Black Planet, Fight the Power, all of that at a young age. And I um, guess I'll say at 44 years old, thank God I did as well because I yeah. could have gone down the wrong path, absolutely. And as Romper Stomper, the movie Jeffrey Wright has shown, it can happen to anyone. Things fucked up in the past, you need that family unit, you have uh, charismatic figures like Hando, and I knew charismatic figures like Hando as well, not that two-dimensional, but ones that they were that charismatic and were that <laughs> onto it and that capable. I could have gone down the, the, the wrong path. Um, yeah, so that's why movies like this are very, very important. That's why sharps are important. Definitely yeah. uh, directors like Jeffrey Wright and podcast discussions here on the Cinema Salon are important. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, a, it's a heavy one and it's... Uh, yeah, I'm, re I'm really glad we were able to dig into this, though. Um, me too. I think we've done really well. You know, not an easy movie, not an easy subject to talk about. I think we've done well. Um, I think we've shown it's still a significant film as well as a, it's just a damn well-made film as well. Still stands yeah. up. Definitely just as a movie watching experience, really good. Um, I, I do have some other things. I think we've said enough though. I think that's um, a nice place to leave it. What do you reckon? Um, yeah, I think uh, I'm just kind of going through my notes here. I think I nailed all the points I wanted to. Mm -hmm. um obviously i'm very thankful to you uh for this opportunity it was a great conversation definitely got me thinking so really yeah, kind of give you know digging into my reese's my my own brain and uh revisit some things so yeah likewise yeah. ben likewise um and uh really appreciative appreciative uh that you uh came on as well to get uh that perspective from over there in the usa as well because this is a global you know uh, topic of discussion is this a global situation uh, from 1992 well from back in the day from the beginning of time to this day unfortunately um, and yeah. it's something we still need to be vigilant about as well um, to show throughout uh, you know through our podcast discussions through our movies uh, through our discussions just in general uh, with each other as well uh, keep talking about it so people like Hando don't manipulate the disenfranchised and politicians don't manipulate uh, the hard trod by because yeah um, because yeah, if, it, it never, if it never does go away um, at least there will always be keep up the fight against it forever basically yeah yeah I mean there's there's more disenfranchised people now I mean I'm not even talking about politics or the pandemic but just the way the world is gone I mean just I mean we're very with uh, materialistic, so at least in the United States, very materialistic. And sometimes that chasing the material um, as an adult, you tend to neglect the youth. And then they find they get stuck into these things. So that's why these conversations are even that more important. Absolutely. You know, I mean, a lot of a lot of people I know are, are chasing their uh, chasing that American dream and uh, neglecting home, which I, I'm I mean, I don't have any kids, um, you know, but I have been definitely guilty of that myself. So. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, I feel you're on the Australian end of things. Um, this is not our country. This has never been our country. This is everyone's country. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we know whose country it was first. So let's never forget about that. And let's pay more attention to that and stop looking overseas for influence and sort out our own situation here as well. You know what, you know what I'm talking about there, Australians. Yep. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Thank you, Mott. Thank you, Jeffrey Wright. Um, yeah. And pretty much I would say that's a thank you for joining me today. That is a wrap on Jeffrey Wright's Romper Stomper, 1992. The doors of the cinema salon are now closed. Fade <laughs> to black. Video postscriptum. I forgot to do the rating and sin scale. <laughs> so, little tack on here. Back with Mott Spock. Thank you for coming back there, sir, for this little bit. Of course, of course. Okay, so it's Romper Stomper. Jeffrey Wright's Romper Stomper, 1992. Okay, um, first thing we'll do is uh, we'll do the rating and then we'll do the sin scale because that's a nice and easy, fun way to finish it off. So out of seven fleur de mals, flowers of evil, translating as morbid or scandalous works of art, out of seven, how much would you give Jeffrey Wright's Romper Stomper and why? Um, I would probably give it probably five and a half to six. Um, there was definitely a lot of sin on there. And as I watched it with a more educated eye, it got better. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a heavy movie and a heavy subject and a lot of sinning going on. So yeah, yeah. So what are you landing yeah. on five and a half or six? I'll go six. Six? Nice. Yeah. Nice. Six flowers of evil. Um yeah, for myself, I'm going to go five. Uh, it's very good. There, are, I mean, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of flowers of evil, but showing us necessary evils that exist in the world, though, as well. So it's not a celebratory thing. It's a realization type of thing. Um, and just because it's an important film uh, that was very well made and presented as well, uh, whilst not being a, an exploitative, uh, sensationalistic film at all, it also showed the reality of the situation, the reality of the humans involved as well, whether you like them or not, can happen to anyone, as we discussed. Right. Um, count uh, balanced by the two-dimensional propaganda spouting arsehole that was Hando, though, as well. So it's also <laughs> showing the danger of that type of thinking and going into that world. Yeah. So definitely a five out of seven uh, flowers of evil. All right. Yeah, for me, like if uh, I mean, I mean, the bad guys got it in the end. So I mean, that's why it wasn't a seven out of seven. But I mean, if it, if it was a glory piece or if, if Hondo ended up living and growing up to have kids and spread his bullshit, it would have been seven. But like you said, it, at the end, of, end of the day, they all got what they deserved. So, Hold on. How do you mean? Like if Hando had come out on top at the end, you'd give it seven. Why would you give it more for the bad guy winning? Oh, I would just be, it would be, I mean, it'd be more sin. It would be more glorifying. No, 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 no. Okay. I think there's a little bit oh. of confusion. There's a little bit of confusion here. Uh, basically just treat the seven out of seven for what did you think of the film as a film? We'll get to the sin rating next and scale next, but just for yourself as a viewer, oh. what, would, what would you rate the quality of the film out of seven? Definitely. A, yeah. Definitely a six. Definitely a six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Mine's yeah, especially five. Watching, watching more and getting more in depth. Like if you just kind of watch it in the background, it probably would be closer to a four or five. 
but just the way things were shot and, you know, the things and all the hard work. And I mean, what Russell Crowe did to prepare for the movie. And um, you know, like you said, you know, the, the gray, the blueness and the grayness and stuff like that. Um, you know, yeah. the more you dig into it and really why Jeffrey Wright did what he did is the six out of seven. So yeah. if you watch it, the more educated, when that more of a mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why, that's why I do this podcast. That's why I like to talk about films. It just helps you appreciate film and art in general, uh, more so as well. And, you know, to educate in an entertaining way as well. Um, so I, so I appreciate that score. Definitely. Um, yeah, I'll get, no, no, I'll, just, I'll be critical. I'll give it a five out of seven. I do hear what you're saying with the six. Uh, why would I not give it six? Maybe because I just enjoyed Metal Skin, the story a little bit more. I can see that he can that he does this type of thing of creating high drama out of the ordinary and ordinary people's lives. It was executed a bit more expertly with Metal Skin. That's his Rev Head movie, the mm -hmm. Carhoon, whatever you want to call it, Motorhead movie that followed yeah. up after this. Yeah. Um, but no, five is still a very high score, definitely. Um, and uh, worthy of that score. Okay, is there anything else you wanted to say before we did the uh, on the rating before we do the sin scale? No, that's it. Was uh, yeah, it was a pleasure just to watch it with you know, like I said, I mean, the first time I saw it was when it first came out 25 some odd years ago, and I'll watch it with a more worldly view and you know, actually taking more in depth. I appreciated it more than I did as a kid, and I actually appreciated it a lot when I first saw it, but watching it more as of a quote unquote worldly person, it definitely kind of opened my eyes to things so. Yeah, absolutely. Well put, well put. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, and just with like um, uh, with the um, flowers of evil there, like um, and the sin scale, like uh, with the rating there, it's just what you feel as a viewer. And flowers of evil just meaning that it's controversial. You know what I mean? It's not your standard mainstream rom romantic comedy that's going to have a <laughs> storyline with an ending that conforms to the dominant ideology. This digs below the surface a little bit. You know what I mean? It's not, it's a black rose rather than a red rose, but it shows more truth in that way about what's really happening in the world. Right. That's pretty much what I mean about flowers of evil. Uh, comes from Baudelaire, the poet, above from his uh, collection, his works there. Um, okay, now with the sin scale, this is, um, again, on the same lines as well. It's showing um, the it's a necessary, vital look at the dark side of life through film. Um, and they demonstrate sins because, you know, uh, the battle between good and evil in Western society, it comes from Catholicism, it comes from Christianity, whether we want to or not. It's in Lord of the Rings, it's in Star Wars, and it's in Romper Stomper as well, yeah? Right. Um, even if you're looking at Gabe and Davey uh, versus Hando, if you will, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah. So, the sins that were demonstrated, uh, we do a, in, in Romper Stomper, we determine these by the sin scale, which is just going through the seven deadly sins of biblical history and seeing which film, uh, seeing what sins were demonstrated in the film Romper Stomper. So we will begin with vain glory or pride. What do you reckon? <laughs> is there much pride shown in this film? <laughs> That's uh that is a big hell yeah fuck yeah there was I mean it was the basis of, it was the first thing that came to mind when I watched it so yeah it was a lot of uh a lot of misplaced pride we'll put it 
So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, lots of vain glory, thinking they're greater than they actually are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's one on uh, for pride. Big tick for pride there. Greed or covetousness? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I um, say, um, I mean, I want to say I said yes too quickly. I'm still going to, I'm still going to, I'm not sure the best way to describe it. Um, I mean, they definitely had to take whatever they wanted attitude. I mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, Honda was very greedy. He uh, used, um, you know, he used her and threw her away, you know, whenever he, you know. Yeah. I'm not explaining this very well. I don't know. I what think, do you think? I think yes for uh, greed um, and covetousness, you know, to – keep yours and no one else's particularly with the character of Malcolm the dad okay yeah that's one greedy motherfucker not only materialistically yeah. but the whole uh the fair in the terms of the domestic sphere his family he want he with the with the with uh Gabe you know what I mean the mother yeah. died however she died um, and he, but he still he coveted his daughter in quite unspeakable ways. Watch the film oh. if you haven't; she'll find out. Or you know, we've already talked about it, of course. Um, yeah, so I think yes for greed there, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, mean, I wasn't even thinking that aspect, but yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, number three, lust or inordinate or illicit sexual desire. Hmm. Well, like we just mentioned, uh, yep. it's another big hell <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And that's from Malcolm and the skinheads as well. Hando was a very lustful character. Um, yeah. You look at the party, the sex scenes and the party, that was just pure drunken lust, definitely. So from all angles, there was lust. Um, number four, this is, an, this is an interesting one, envy. Oh, yeah, I think so. I, I also think so. I was thinking just envious of ways past. I mean, obviously they're their hero worship of the Nazis and of Hitler in itself, they were very envious of what they were trying to accomplish, 100%. And also envious of what the Vietnamese were uh, accomplishing in Melbourne, in Victoria, in Australian society as well. So, yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, number five, gluttony, which is usually understood to include drunkenness. And I would also (laughs) put on illicit drug use as well into this as well to go with drunkenness. And that's a big yes. (laughs) That's, yep, that's, there's a whole scene. It was just, you know, a big gluttonous orgy, basically, is the best way to put it. So, yep, yep, yep. Um, And also, Gabe was a pillhead as well. I believe it was even meant to be heroin. Well, um, opiates, uh, some sort of Oxycontin, whatever it was back in 1992. That's why she's nodding off at the start and whatnot. She takes those pills rather than her epileptic medicine. Yeah, for medicine Mm -hmm. for seizures. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's her dad said she was a a regular old pharmacy and not even taking the pill she was supposed to be. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's five out of five so far. Wow. Um, okay. And it's going to beat how it's going to be cannibal Holocaust because <laughs> number six is wrath or anger, wrath or anger. Yep. hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Yep. I mean, uh, after you. 
yeah, they were just they were just angry that uh, the Vietnamese were moving on their turf and that they were not the same skin or heritage or genetic. You know, it's all the whole movie is about anger. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, uh, another way to uh, word wrath or anger is vengeance as well. And the vengeance the Vietnamese took on the skinheads for the initial <laughs> beating in the underpass. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's six out of six. Um, and number seven, sloth. Yeah, I think we got seven out of seven here, my friend. I, I mean, think we've got seven out of seven. They none of them had jobs. Yeah. They were all on welfare, and they were they were bitching about the system, but yet they were getting paid their dole every month. Yep, you know yep. from their dole checks. So, and I saw no showering or changing of clothes <laughs> to any great degree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> or any, any, any shower even nearby whatsoever. I think the closest thing they get to a shower is when they tie her dad up to the toilet. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Seven out of seven. Wow. And Cannibal Holocaust was only five. That is saying something. Again, not a good way to think, not a good way to live. Yeah. <laughs> Boneheads can go fuck themselves because <laughs> they are Yeah, fucked. for sure. <laughs> they can they going into fucked. this, I was thinking maybe I was thinking maybe five, but the more and more we discussed it, it was definitely seven out of seven. So seven out of seven. Well, the bar has been set very high, low, however you want to look at it, both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll see um, what film can uh, match up to it. Um, yeah, thank you again, Mr. Mott Spock. Um, any further kind of like little shout outs follow me here or there anything you want to add to um, this tech on now first i just want to you know thank gene obviously here for the opportunity um i want to nice shout welcome. out our uh, our network head here mr jimmy ferrara and your um yeah, media area yeah. network mates so my boys phil yeah. and jay and choppy over at, uh turnbuckle throwbacks you can follow Absolutely. me at high five tom on the twitter mm -hmm. um I also do, if you're in the United States here, I do the Midwest Wrestling Roundup for my friends Chad and Diesel at The View from the Top Rope. And hopefully I'm not missing anybody else. And I want to shout out my better half, Faith, because um, she puts up with me recording these things. So <laughs> Nice, nice. Um, yeah, very good point. Thank you. Yes, thank you, uh, Jimmy Ferrari from Dark Satellite Media, Zane Weber from That's Not Canon Productions for giving uh, my podcast here a home. Uh, shout out to the Gimmick Gang, of course, uh, which started this whole little uh, pod, little mini podcast yeah. <laughs> network revolution thing going on. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's all. I think that's all. So um, yeah, the movie's over. Go home, clean up your mess, get out of the cinema. We're done. Life is a horror movie, it's just sin as the cinema. I'm stacking the copies and I'm putting sin in the cinema. Bearing the bad news, serving the slaughter. Death will take you. Life is a horror movie, it's just sin as the cinema I'm stacking the copies and I'm putting sin in the cinema Bearing the bad news, serving the slaughter Death will take you slow Here's a message from the devil, he ain't playing around Yeah.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.